and good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be, wherever you are around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. Well, this morning's program is going to be kind of, I shouldn't say that, kind of unique is really very, very bad grammar. It's going to be unique in that I am going to propose what I would uh, say is a kind of a unifying model that connects events which happened 50 years ago, no, 58 years ago, with events that have happened in the last uh, uh, few months. And that includes things that in normal uh, nomenclature would be considered definitely outside the box. And as I was preparing for tonight's show, and I was sending uh, some news items to Kinthea for posting, I I had one of our colleagues send me a new news item, which kind of reinforces the older news item, and all of that will become clear as we go through the morning. So let me start with uh, uh, news items at the very top. Uh, we're obviously keeping a close eye on La Palma. If you go to the other side of midnight.com, that's our URL, and you click on tonight's banner, which says from JFK to JDT was the murder of the president over 50 years ago designed to change the timeline and thereby hangs a whole bunch of very, very complicated, and as you're going to see later in the morning, very complicated theories. But there is evidence to connect these dots, so we will proceed to uh, connect evidence and dots. So you've got that banner, click on that, it takes you to the guest page. Right under the guest page, you'll see fast links to items. Click on my name, takes you to the first item. We're looking again at La Palma because uh, if you click on that link and you kind of scroll down a couple, uh, uh, you know, turns of the uh, of the wheel, you will see an astonishing uh, color image, uh, which is not the image on the uh, page. It's the next one into the article. La Palma has opened new fissures. It's uh, its uh, eruption rate has increased. The amount of lava is increasing. The number of people left on the island is now very small. It has destroyed hundreds and hundreds of structures, homes, businesses, whatever. There is no tourism, obviously. The airport is closed. But of course, we're all looking at the major potential event, which is La Palma, from geological perspectives, could unleash an extraordinary catastrophic event, i.e., the slippage of something like 500 billion tons of the island into the Atlantic, which would create in this scenario a mega tsunami, and we discussed at great length last night what that could do. Now, that's why everyone should, you know, look at this page. This is a live La Palma geological link page uh, posted by a group called Volcano Discovery, and you will see um, links there to uh, uh, seismic data. The seismic events have increased also, and you can see the postings there from uh, youngest to oldest as you scroll down the page. Over on the left-hand side, you can see the uh, tremor amplitude. There's a small graph there. And there are mapping sites. Anyway, this is kind of like the place to go you want to put this on your phone in terms of alerts. As you scroll down the page, you'll see more. 
and more detailed geological analysis and reports on the uh, current seismic level, et cetera, et cetera. Again, this, this worst case scenario is a very, very low probability event, but it's not zero. So in a world where up is down and down is up and nothing uh, seems to be uh, moving according to any previous plan, um, I just want everyone to keep an eye on the, um, on the uh, website and make sure that you have connected yourself through your phone to any kind of seismic alerts because uh, uh, that's what you want to watch for. If, if something really untoward were to happen, you would have between six and nine hours on the east coast of the United States. You would have a lot less warning time in Europe or in Africa. You would have slightly longer in the Caribbean, in the Gulf Coast, or in South America, particularly the northern coast of South America. But um, you would have warning. So that's why we all have smartphones these days, and that's why this global alert system is very, very um, important, particularly when you're trying to keep track of events like this. Now, last night, I discussed uh, the fact that I was seeing, coincidentally, Kilauea in Hawaii also beginning a new eruption cycle. Hasn't done that for many, many months, maybe a year, year and a half. One one loses track of time when you're not monitoring these things every day. Um, And then if you look at a larger swath of time, there was an eight-plus earthquake in the Aleutians uh, in July, which is, what, a couple months ago. And so I began to wonder, was the La Palma event part of a larger increase in seismic activity and in volcanism around the planet? So if you look at item number two, this is a very important link. This is the Smithsonian's backgrounder on has volcanic activity been increasing over time? And they literally have uh, data there from the 1800s all the way through to the present. And you'll see two graphs. You'll see a bottom graph, which is eruptions of volcanic uh, uh, you know, lava over a tenth of a kilometer in, in volume, cubic kilometer, I'm sorry. And then the upper graph, which definitely shows an increase, particularly a rather dramatic rise in the last uh, few years. Now, they warn you when you look at that graph, it says, do not use this image out of context from the analysis on the site volcano at edu. And that's why I'm posting the entire page as opposed to just the, uh, the graphs, because according to their analysis, and when I say there, it's the Smithsonian, Museum of Natural History, the Global Volcanism Program, who, of course, are plugged into all the major volcanologists and seismologists all over the world. Uh, They're a good synthesis of data, including the USGS, the U.S. Geological Survey. What I'm intrigued with is there's a definite increase in the upper graph and a almost steady, you know, monotonic uh, line, horizontal line across the bottom graph. The bottom graph depicts major, major eruptions, and the upper graph depicts much smaller eruptions, including all of those encompassed by the bottom line. Now, what they say, and this is important, 
graph showing the number of volcanoes reported to have been active each year since 1800 of the current era. Total number of volcanoes which reported eruptions per year, the thin upper black line, and 10 years running mean of the same data, the thick upper red line. Lower lines show only the annual number of volcanoes producing large eruptions, that is more than a tenth of a cubic kilometer of tephra or magma, and the scale is enlarged on the right axis. Thick red lower line again shows 10-year running mean, see text or discussion. And what they're arguing in this very interesting analysis is the apparent increase is just that. It's apparent. And they're, they're basing that, and if you scroll down, you'll see another set of graphs, with the fact that the dramatic increase, particularly in the last few years, mirrors a population increase worldwide. So they're arguing that the apparent increase in small volcanoes with small volumes of material ejected is in fact an observer selection effect. It's not a real increase and in fact is, is accounted for by paying attention. More media, not just newspapers, not just radio, but now social media, and people more interested in global uh, environmental events, et cetera, et cetera. So they're basically discounting the idea that for all eruptions, there has been an increase from the 1800s to the present, particularly a rather dramatic increase in the last few years. This is where things get interesting. Because in our model, in my model, the Enterprise Mission model, the reason for a real increase as opposed to just a parent is not only do you have a population observer factor to factor in, but you also have an increase in real events. Why? Because the model of the hyperdimensional torsion field physics says there's more energy sloshing around in the system. And with more energy, it manifests in increasing geological activity, increasing meteorological activity, it even impinges on biology, i.e. consciousness for human beings. So it's a very integrated theory. And part of the way we can measure the accuracy is to look at some of these curves to see if there are in fact historical increases over previous eras. I mean, it's really unfortunate that we don't have any real measure of anything beyond a couple, 300 years ago because it would be nice to have calibrated data from thousands of years or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, but of course we don't. So everything we're looking at is basically extrapolated over the last couple hundred years, which is an eye blink in geologic time and there's no real way to do real science, but one just has the feeling that there is, and I know feeling isn't science, but sometimes intuitions can lead to good science, so that's why I posted all of this, and you can make of it what you will. Um, I just happen to have a personal proclivity that because the physics says there should be increasing activity in these major areas, and we see it, that there in fact could be an interesting correlation, which is not affecting the huge events, but is infecting what we would call events that are closer to the noise level. In other words, the noise level is moving down, the signal level is moving up, so there are, in fact, an unequal distribution of smaller events as opposed to major catastrophic events. 
and we'll see, you know, how that plays out. Item number three. Uh, we've had another major oil spill, as long as we're talking environment. Uh, sometime last night, a major pipeline connecting one of the offshore, offshore, offshore oil rigs uh, burst or broke or something malfunctioned and something like 120,000 gallons of crude has leaked into uh, the coastal waters off California, off Los Angeles and Long Beach, and they're having a hell of a time because, of course, wildlife is suffering, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which, of course, is another data point that we should be moving as rapidly as possible away from fossil fuels because even, you know, let alone the burning of them, the transportation from point A to point B because, again, of failing infrastructure um, is not doing us any favors. So uh, you might, if you're on the West Coast, uh, want to keep an eye on that. And I'm going to save the final items for our discussion during the show because they're very relevant to our uh, guests tonight. And our guests for the first two hours include two very interesting people. Uh, Danny Sheehan is a Harvard College, Harvard Law School, and Harvard Divinity School trained constitutional litigation and appellate attorney. For close to five decades, Dan's worked as a federal civil rights attorney, an author, a public speaker, and college and law school educator, and has helped expose the structural sources of injustice in our country and around the world with unending energy. And we will discuss some of the specifics that they become relevant to this morning's conversation as we, as we go along. Barbara Honiger has served as a special assistant to the president, a White House policy analyst, director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice, and from 1995 to 2011 was senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, the premier science, technology, and national security affairs research university of the Department of Defense. And um, I might add that she was a key member in, in these earlier years of, a, of the Reagan administration. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Hi, Richard. Hi, the Barbara. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. This is Dan. And Dan is very, very echoey. He's about five years, five light years from the mic, so he needs to get closer, quite right. a bit closer. Okay, I can, oh, I can either... Uh, much better. Much, much better. better. Okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, Danny just returned from the far side of the moon. So. <laughs> right. Far side of Mars. <laughs> anyway, um, how do I begin tonight? Uh, let me let's say what. Let me let me start with Dan, because Dan, you were and have actually taught what happened in in terms of the actual Kennedy assassination, and the implications for the years moving forward. Um, why don't we? kind of look at this from your perspective what was it obviously everyone remembers where they were when the president was killed where were you i was on the drill field uh, outside of boston in the special forces u.s army special forces uh rotc in uh, college uh and then i went on to harvard college uh in harvard law school from there but i was on on the drill field in rotc uh, on November 22nd, 1963. Did you automatically understand what was going on, or did it take you a while? 
Oh no, I mean I you could you could tell uh, when when the I was watching live television of the coverage of the whole thing. I the college is all uh, closed down because it was just before Thanksgiving break anyhow. Uh, and, uh, so I went back up to Lake, Lake George, where I grew up, up in the Adirondack mountains and was watching the coverage and the funeral and everything. And when, uh, Oswald was shot and killed, uh, even at that point, when I was just a, a freshman in college, uh, I said, whoops, hold a second. That's not real. Uh, something, something's very wrong here. Uh, and when the, uh, the full report came out a year later, that had been ordered by Lyndon Johnson. Uh, and I realized that uh, Alan Dulles, uh, the, the recently fired head of the Central Intelligence Agency, had been fired by, by Kennedy, was one of the principal uh, people on the panel. I was extremely suspicious of that. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't until much later, after I'd uh, graduated from Harvard College and uh, Harvard Law School, and was uh, actually uh, at the office of F. Lee Bailey. Well, we, when we were doing the Watergate burglary case, we were representing uh, James McCord, who was the former CIA uh, wiretapping specialist who was arrested in the Watergate Hotel. Uh, I was asked by Bailey to come in as special counsel on that case, and we ended up getting uh, James McCord to blow the whistle, actually, on, uh, on Nixon and the plumbers. He's the one that wrote the letter to Judge Sirica uh, explaining uh, what was going on. And uh, in the course of that representation, uh, I discovered that F. Lee Bailey, uh, our senior partner in the law firm, I was one of the three trial lawyers along with Lee Bailey and Jerry Alt. And uh, I realized that uh, that one of our clients was, uh, was Santos Traficante, mm. uh, which, I, I, which I didn't know ahead of time uh but when i realized and and the, for those that don't know the name you might mention his associations yeah he was santos Traficanti was the don of the mafia in in havana and he is the man who put together the assassination team that was back in 1960 was uh was put together to assassinate fidel castro in raul castro in che Guevara. uh this was an operation that was put together uh, uh, by Traficante at the request specifically of Howard Hughes. Uh, and Howard Hughes had been called by Richard Nixon, who was the vice president under Eisenhower at that time and was the chair of the 5412 committee that was in charge of all covert operations. And uh, Nixon, as soon as Nixon realized that Nixon was going to be the nominee for the Republican Party in the presidential race in 1960 against uh, John Kennedy, uh, Nixon called Howard Hughes on the, the safe phones uh, that Howard Hughes had become a uh, secret consultant to the 5412 committee in the National Security Council. Uh, and uh, Nixon contacted him and asked him to put together an assassination team to assassinate Fidel Castro in Raul Castro and Che Guevara. Uh, and it was when I realized that the that uh, three of the well, four actually of the people that were arrested in the Watergate Hotel that we were assigned to uh, to do something about. Uh, I realized that these were Santos Traficante's people that were in the Watergate Hotel, and I was saying, 
what more are they doing there? Hmm. And so I began to uh, generate a, an investigation inside our office. Uh, and my chief investigator, William Johnstone Taylor, uh, sat down with Bad Andy Tooney. Uh, Andy Tooney was chief investigator for the F. Lee Bailey's law office. And, uh, and then we found out that uh, Traficante was one of our secret clients. Uh, and Bad Andy Tooney went and interviewed uh, Traficante for us. Uh, and Traficante laid out in great detail what had happened in the assassination and how it is that uh, the team, the same team that he had personally was involved in handpicking members of to kill Castro uh, and Fidel, Fidel Castro and Raul Castro and Che Guevara, how they had turned on and killed President Kennedy. And he explained that to us. This is in 1973. This is in May of 73 that I was informed about this. Uh, and so I've been knowledgeable about the details of this since that time. It's so funny you should pick that live television uh, shot, pun intended, of Oswald uh, yeah. being killed. Cause yeah. That's the moment. I was just in high I was a few years behind you. I was just in high school. And yeah. I remember seeing that and instantly it was like, yeah. whoa. Yeah, right. Well, well it was right. like something out of, you know, one of the crime dramas that used to run on mm-hmm. three networks. It was so obvious it was a cover-up, you know, kill the guy so we can't talk, so we can't testify. So, uh, Barbara, let me ask you the same question. Where were you, and what was your immediate reaction to the Kennedy murder? Well, I didn't see it live on television. And by the way, hi, Danny. Hi, Barb. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Wonderful to be on this program with you. I think it's going to be potentially historic here. I, w- I did not watch live. I don't, not even sure we had a television, but I was in high school. Um, so the 1963 I graduated, I would have been a sophomore or a junior. I think it's sophomore in high school. And um, however, there, we did have a, a TV at home. So when I got home, there were, of course, you know, reruns of, of the shootings uh, of the event. And my very first thought, which I find fascinating because I still have the same question and I want to put it towards you and Danny and anybody who wants to call in later and Georgia in the third hour. My very first shot was if somebody wanted to kill the president of the United States, it was obvious to me from what I saw that the secret service had to have been complicit. So if somebody wanted to kill the president of the United States, why do it so publicly? If, if the Secret Service is involved, you can knock him off privately. And so my question was, who, who is the real audience of this grotesquely horrendous public execution? No, wait, wait. This was your reaction as a teenager watching? Yes. Okay. Yes. And so I asked myself the question. I still don't know the answer. I asked myself the very first question, who was the real audience for that? I believe somebody had that the real perpetrators felt that there was some audience or some individual or some very powerful group of persons or a person who had to know that Kennedy was really dead. And my, I still have that question. Why kill him so publicly? Hmm. Danny, you want to take a whack at that? No. Okay. No, that, that wasn't that wasn't my immediate reaction. I've been uh, Bar- Barbara has strange reactions to uh, to things when they happen. Uh, 
she's uh, on about the four, third or fourth dimension of, uh, of what's going on. Uh, I, at the time when, when I saw it, I was just horrified that it had happened. Uh, and when I discovered what it is that had happened, when I was, uh, this is in 1973, uh, so I would have been uh, 73, 1945, however old I was, I was in my early 20s or mid-20s, uh, when I discovered what it is that really happened, that it was the team that had been put together by Santos Traficante at the request basically of Richard Nixon to assassinate uh, Castro and Che Guevara, and I realized that they're the ones that had done this, uh, I began to be extremely uh, concerned about who it is that was above them, because it was perfectly evident that uh, those people just by themselves in other words, would, who, not, in other would words, not have been able to get away with it. Who ordered the hit? Yeah, that's right. Who greenlighted this from above? Oh. Because that, that had to be greenlighted from above. They couldn't have gotten away with it. Uh, it would have, the, the cover-up uh, was too instantaneous and too thorough. Uh, and so I began at the time, uh, once, I, once I knew who had done it, uh, I, I started investigating to try to figure out who had greenlighted it above them. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time working on this. I, we uh, retained Dick Billings who was the uh, chief staff writer for the House Select Committee on Assassinations. I spent a lot of time talking to Gaetan Fonzi, who was one of the major investigators. Uh, I've spent a lot of time working on this with professional investigators uh, to dig in and have taught the class now at the University of California at Santa Cruz. I taught a uh, 20 lectures, 20 90-minute lectures on this particular assassination and it laid out in extreme detail what it is that I believe happened uh, and why and set forth the evidence uh, on it. Okay, let me, let me, let me do this. We've got about uh, three minutes to the bottom of the hour. When we come back, Danny, I want you to encapsulate the mainstream model, the lone gunman Oswald model, and then I want you to recapitulate in a few minutes what you have been teaching in terms of what you've learned that totally contradicts the mainstream Oswald Lone Gunman model. And mm -hmm. between now and the bottom of the hour, I want to go back to Barbara because, Barbara, your reaction and the question, the really interesting question, why do it live? And in those days, of course, uh, it, was, it was live black and white television. Um, mm -hmm. And then there was film, the famous Zap Ruder film, and some other films have come out. But it was a sense. didn't come out for a long time. Yeah. But it, but it essentially was a television event, the first major yeah. television event, I would argue, of the, of the 20th century. And right. my, my old friend Gene Roddenberry, you know, once said to me about some huge major historical thing, but Dick, if this was real, it would be on television. So I've kind of coined what I call Roddenberry's rule, that even if you're an insider and you're fully up on the plot, the conspiracy, you've got all the briefings and all that. At some level, we have conditioned ourselves as a society that you will not believe it unless you see it on television. And now, right. of course, we can expand that to major media like the Internet, social, whatever, whatever. So back to my main point, my very first thought, who had to know Kennedy was for sure dead and why? And see it essentially take place in real time. Exactly. And, yeah. and you don't have an answer to that yet. 
I still don't have an answer to that. Hmm. I, I just say, I don't, I don't believe that's the operative question. Just so that we can be clear. I don't think that's, I don't think that, I don't think that's the operative question. And the real operative question is who green at the operation to kill him. Once, well, once well, you, once you know who killed him. Yeah. Okay, guys, 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 let's, let's hold this for the air. Let's take a break here. <laughs> My guests this morning are Barbara Honiger, who is a senior policy analyst in the Reagan administration, and Danny Sheehan, who has served in and out of many administrations, has been part of this investigation of the Kennedy assassination ever since it happened, practically. And uh, we will continue with both of our guests. We'll be joined by Georgia Lambert in the third hour. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. And in my opinion, this was the seminal event of the 20th century that changed the future. Just how? When we return. I think you're looking with this great reset, you're looking at Mr. Globalone's efforts to move everybody into a cashless society, which, you know, like it or not, that's a one-way mirror, folks. Because at that point, you're not dealing with a currency, you're dealing with a corporate coupon that they can adjust the value of at the push of a button, depending on whether or not you're good little boys and girls. And if you're getting into a system where all of the infrastructure of financial clearing is in the hands of the bankers, that's not a system you want to go into. You look at the West and more importantly, if you look at what some people call the Anglosphere, the, the Western powers that are English speaking, the United Kingdom, Canada, United States, and so on. I do think it's the case there. They're using a health crisis really to drive a, a political agenda. And the health crisis itself is largely blown way, way out of proportion to what's actually the case. If you look at what Mr. Globalone is up to, they are recreating slavery. And the, the thing that is unique about slavery is they now have the means of perfecting the capital because now they can literally implant your body with the means to track you. 
it's not going to go away overnight. But there are already, uh, I think, some hopeful signs of cracks beginning to appear in the edifice. This is Joseph P. Farrell, and for all the news the media doesn't like you to hear, tune in to the other side of the news. Sunday night, October 3rd. We have two very distinguished guests tonight, Daniel Sheehan and Barbara Honiger, both who have uh, been Washington veterans fighting literally for that old cliche, truth, justice, and the American way for more decades than I think either one of them would really want to uh, quantify. So let me get back to the subject at hand. Uh, Danny, what I'd like you to do is to encapsulate the mainstream model, which I should say, probably the Kennedy assassination has spurred more books, more research, more print, more barrels of ink than any other historical event, certainly in modern American history. And most of it, according to what we now know, has been wrong. So lay out the standard model, and then let's talk about what really happened. Sure. The, the, the standard model, of course, was set forth by the Warren Commission. Uh, it, was, it was the commission that was really supervised effectively by Alan Dulles, uh, the former head of the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, who had been recently fired by President Kennedy. Uh, but most importantly, he was legal counsel for, the, for Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, the major financial investment group that included the Rockefellers and J.P. Morgan and, uh, and uh, uh, George Herbert Walker, uh, the grandfather of George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, and mainly the, the two dozen wealthiest families in the, in the country that owned the major corporations that had come to dominate the robber baron era uh, that followed the American Civil War. This, this group of investors in Brown Brothers Harriman uh, had a consigliere, who was Alan Dulles, who was uh, assigned to be the lawyer for Brown Brothers Harriman from the law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell. And this is the key source of his power. Uh, and uh, when the uh, at the end of World War II, when the uh, OSS was disbanded by Truman, uh, at the very end of the war, uh, Robert Lovett, who was a senior partner at Brown Brothers Harriman, wrote a major memo to Truman recommending that they create a new uh, intelligence agency that had this major covert operation capacity uh, to carry out uh, the agenda uh, 
of the people who viewed themselves as having won the war. Uh, what isn't as well known is the fact that Brown Brothers Harriman uh, are the ones that primarily financed the rise of the Nazi party in Germany uh, in, in, in between the two world wars. Uh, there's lots of details about that we can go into. But the bottom line is that, that uh, Alan Dulles, uh, when he was made the first civilian head of the Central Intelligence Agency, had established a major political assassination operation that was going on around the world uh, and, it, and set up uh, uh, originally uh, in the, uh, in the, outside of the Central Intelligence Agency so that it couldn't be tracked back to them. And that's the role, that's the role that, that Howard Hughes played in setting up the assassination team. And, uh, and Santos Traficanti handpicked the 15 gunmen that were his former gunmen from, he was the, the Don of the Mafia in Havana prior to Batista being overthrown in January of 59 and Castro coming to power. Uh, and so that this, uh, this assassination team that was put together uh, is the group that was actually tasked to kill the president uh, when the president, when, when Kennedy came into power. Now, the straight-up story that was set forth by the Warren Commission, it's, it's extraordinarily important to remember that, that it, it's called the Warren Commission, but as I pointed out, it was Alan Dulles that really ran that commission uh, and was appointed to the commission by Lyndon Johnson. But uh, Earl Warren was the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Uh, and Lyndon Johnson went to, uh, went to uh, Warren, Earl Warren, and said, look, the, this commission that's going to investigate the killing of the president has to have the credibility of like the Supreme Court. So even though you're the ju Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, I want you to chair this commission. And one thing Lyndon Johnson said to him, the thing that you have to be most careful about is you cannot possibly allow anybody to get information to know that there was an assassination team that was put together uh, to try to kill Fidel Castro. Because if you do, if you, that comes out, people are going to think that because, and he, he lied and said that it was uh, John and Robert Kennedy that had put together the assassination team to kill Castro and Che Guevara. And it was not. It was Richard Nixon uh, earlier uh, in 1960 while he was still vice president. Uh, and the lie, the lie that Lyndon Johnson told to Warren said, you've got to become the chairman of this commission so you can keep secret the fact that there was this assassination team that was put together to kill Castro so that people won't think that Castro did this to retaliate uh, or else we'll have to go to war uh, against Cuba and then we'll have a third world war with, with uh, Russia. And so Earl Warren uh, spent his time uh, working hard along with Alan Dulles to make certain that the team that actually assassinated the president was never revealed. Uh, and that's, that's the key to, to understanding this operation. Whereas the commission itself went forward and it, it laid the sole and exclusive uh, responsibility for the shooting on Lee Harvey Oswald. Now Lee Harvey Oswald, this is the, it is the, those who have seen the entire 20 course classes that I taught on this, uh, one of the key misperceptions on the part of almost everybody involved in this is everybody's trying to pretend that Lee Harvey Oswald had nothing to do with the assassination, that he was just sort of a, an innocent chump of some sort 
uh, that got sort of uh, strangely set up to do this thing. Well, didn't but didn't didn't he didn't he say just before uh, he was shot that I'm a patsy or something like oh, that? Oh yeah, yeah. But a, a patsy a patsy isn't someone who's just completely innocent all the time. I mean, the re- the reality was Lee Harvey Oswald was working intimately with a lot of these same people that were involved in the assassination. You know, he was he was intimately involved in helping to supply military equipment, uh, 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 you know, with with the hardcore right wing people that were in uh, New Orleans. That that whole free Cuba committee thing was set up as a complete phony front. Uh, he had offices right in 555 Camp Street, uh, you know, along with with the hardcore right wing people that were there. The the president of the World Anti-Communist League for the Latin America was in that office. Uh, so the, the, this, this, uh, the, the fact of the matter is that Lee Harvey Oswald was drawn into the assassination plot, uh, but is not the one, obviously, that fired the shots that killed him. Uh, but he was drawn into it and participated in the activities of the team. There's a 15-man shooting team that was deployed uh, there. Uh, you know, it was... Obviously, Roger uh, Roger Morales was one of the big shooters, the Indian they called him, uh, and there was Rafael Chisi Quintero, Ricardo Chavez, Rolando Martinez, a whole series of them. I know the names of them because Santos Traficante gave us the names of all of the people that were involved. Uh, and Ed Lansdale was the man who was actually choreographing the operation uh, uh, in uh, in in the square. Uh, and then there there was the uh, the team of people that were the actual field commanding people for the for the assassination team were all present. So there are 15 people that were all involved in this sophisticated uh, triangular fire team so that from, fired into the square. So from your information, did Oswald know the target, who the target was, or was he? Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, certainly he did. Certainly he did. Uh, and, the, you know, the, the, uh, the, it may well have even fired a shot at him. Uh, that hit the street, that, that just hit the pavement, uh, and that it was, it may very well have been just an attempt to have a, a staged attempt on the president's life just to generate uh, a response on the thing to try to instigate a war uh, against Cuba, uh, the main people that were involved in this. But, but the fact is, at the same time, when he may well have thought that's all he was doing, the fact is there was an entire sophisticated triangular fire team that was set up to fire at the president, you know, obviously from the grassy knoll and one from the Daltex building uh, and, and a third one. So there was, a, it was a classic triangular fire team. The team was trained by Carl Jenkins, uh, whom I've spent many hours uh, with. Uh, he trained them down on a, 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 a ranch down in Oaxaca, Mexico. that was owned by Clint Merchison Jr. Uh, we, we know the personnel that were involved. We know the, uh, the people. The key was is to try to understand how high up it went. So there's a lot of people. For example, you read David Talbot's book uh, called The Devil's Chessboard. Uh, the Devil's Chessboard: uh, the, the Rise of the American Secret Government in Alan Dulles. It's clear that Alan Dulles was a major person greenlighting this particular assassination. Uh, but the reality is he wasn't doing it as merely a disgruntled a CIA person that was fired uh, and that they were upset at him. Uh, it's upset at Kennedy for either the Bay of Pigs uh, failure or for that matter, the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was, it was the people high up, high up, like in Brown Brothers Harriman, the people like, uh, like uh, uh, George Herbert Walker, 
people like Alan Dulles, the people that were involved, the DuPont, the DuPonts, the same, the same people, literally some of them, who attempted to stage a coup against Roosevelt uh, back in 1934. I oh, mean, this was the same group. General Butler, what was his name? Well, the Smedley Butler. Smedley Butler. Butler, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, but but that that was that those were all people out of Brown Brothers Harriman. This was this was an extraordinarily powerful group of of the the main uh, corporate uh, investors uh, in in the major industries in the country. Uh, and and Kennedy, it's important to remember that that after the after the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, John Kennedy John Kennedy was exchanging a whole series of secret communications with Khrushchev. Uh, 18 letters that were going back and forth, completely outside of the channels of the CIA or the State Department. Uh, Norman Cousins was delivering the letters back and forth. And uh, John Kennedy and uh, Khrushchev were planning to start to disassemble the nuclear warheads uh, of both the United States uh, arsenal and the Russian arsenal. Uh, they, they, they were both totally traumatized about how close we had come to total thermonuclear exchange. And the two of them were coordinating to exercise their executive power uh, to, to disassemble, to start ordering the disassembly of the warheads. Uh, in fact, the, the deal was going to be brokered by uh, Pope John the 23rd. Because both men, Khrushchev and Kennedy, trusted him implicitly, and he could assure the fact that they would carry through with this. That's what scared everybody. That 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 freaked everybody out uh, that found out about it, because the attempt to disassemble the nuclear weapon, the nuclear warhead, uh, the the China lobby people that resided in Brown Brothers Harriman, that they realized that they needed to have nuclear weapons, not not to oppose Russia particularly, but China. Because China, China had demonstrated it in the Korean War, uh, they could they could put a billion men in the field uh, against any any West forces. In uh, that in and Gorbachev said this to us directly in private conversations. So look at so the, this 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 nuclear arsenal was necessary by the part of the United States against China because they were the long time threat into the future, which we're facing right now. Uh, to bring things up to the current time. Mm. So this, this whole effort on the part of, of Kennedy and Khrushchev to start to exercise their respective executive authorities that they had to start to order the disassembly uh, of the nuclear weapons uh, is what triggered this emergency thing to kill him did you, because they couldn't wait. They couldn't wait for the election in 1964. Did you, they had to get rid of him. Did you ever read Ted Sorensen's biography? Uh, I, I talked to Teddy Sorensen, but I don't think I didn't read his biography. Well, in his biography, the thing that really caught my eye, because remember, just before he was killed, Kennedy reversed himself, and at the UN proposed that Project Apollo, the United States going to the moon, go to the moon with the Soviets, not as antagonists, but as oh yeah, no no. So that was part of that's part of what Kennedy and Khrushchev were talking about. There's yeah. no doubt about that. Well, there's no doubt about that. Of course. Well, we know that. We we, we know yeah. it from. But that, but that isn't that isn't what got him killed. How, what got him are killed you, was attempting Are you, are <laughs> you yeah. sure? Yes, I'm I'm positive. I'm positive because any time a respected about. scientist or lawyer says they're positive, I get very nervous because well, I'm not positive of anything. I keep well, looking. That's, that's how you. That's how you and I are different. That, given, uh, given, I, I become positive about things, and then I prove them by by direct 
court admissible evidence. That's what I get tasked to do. Well, I'm not tasked to speculate. Given, I, have to, I have to get the evidence and show it. Given that we have, again, really am- amazing data of ancient ET structures on the moon, and given that NASA was taken over by the Nazis in Operation Paperclip, and the Nazis, of course, were enemies of the Russians, um, his Kennedy's about face on you know, dealing with the Soviets as antagonists as opposed to taking them as partners to the moon and unveiling all that was there, which went all the way back to Project Corona, which I can prove. Um, I think that was one additional major piece of evidence as to a reason why they had to get rid of him because right after Kennedy was killed, Johnson and I forget the senior uh, member of the House who crafted a, a document, a, a law, which made it illegal unless the president agreed uh, and the Congress agreed for any cooperation in space with the Soviets. Um, and then, of course, well, we... I mean, I, I know this thesis. I mean, I know the thesis that, that people think that and, and it is clear. It is clear back on June 5th of 1963 that that President Kennedy uh, requested the uh, access to the the UFO information. And it was clear that he was intending to share it with with uh, Khrushchev. There isn't any doubt about that, that he was he was that he and Khrushchev were so totally traumatized by what happened in October of 1962 and how close they came to destroying civilization that they were both committed to trying to disassemble the nuclear warheads mm. and to cooperate uh, in space to, to try to overcome this incredible dialectic that had been generated. You know, so that you had all these people like Lemonser and, and uh, Curtis LeMay and all those hardcore right-wing uh, fascists. You know, I mean, the, the, the fascist connection is extraordinarily important here, but it's, but it's not... It's not the, the the primary driver of this is not the issue of the UFO stuff and the the information about you know extraterrestrials etc. As you know, I'm fairly intimately involved in all of that activity as well, uh, so I'm I'm quite familiar with all of that stuff. I'm in fact scheduled this next coming week in this in the middle of October to be meeting again with the Inspector General's Office of the Defense Department to try to keep on putting pressure on them to reveal more and more of the information that it is they do know. Uh, and so I'm very familiar with that whole set of data. And I do not believe at all that it is any proximate causation of killing the president. It was just that you know perfectly well when you're having direct communication with Khrushchev uh, in planning to exercise their respective executive authority, which they have considerable uh, amount of, to start disassembling the nuclear weapons, the nuclear warheads. This is, this is something that those who rely upon the nuclear arsenal of the United States to foster and promote their major economic interests as major owners of the corporations and the utilization of this threat of nuclear war uh, to to support their access to privileged access to the strategic raw materials on the planet. That is the, that is where they live. That is how they run the world. And for him to start to try to disassemble that, that they'd spent all of that time from 1945 all the way up to 1963 to establish massive uh, superiority in that field, uh, that that was just absolutely unacceptable. Uh, and so it's not so much a matter of, in my opinion, anybody having to make sure he was dead, 
you know, the, the, the key was is make, making sure that he got dead. You know, it wasn't, mm. it wasn't just why they had to kill him right in front of everybody to make sure they were sure he was dead. You know, the, the key was is getting him dead because as, as long well, as he was alive, I, I, he could do it. Let me make one more point on this, and then I, I want to move yeah. on. Um, in sure. Sorensen's book, again, Sorensen wrote an extremely interesting book. I recommend it to you. Mm-hmm. He says that right after Kennedy um, made the speech to the Congress announcing Apollo, he began sending Sorensen downtown with notes to Khrushchev concealed in a copy of the Washington Post. And mm-hmm. Sorensen would stand at a certain bus stop or whatever, and he mm-hmm. would hand mm-hmm. off the paper to a KGB agent who would exchange papers with notes from Khrushchev back to him. And it was all about collaborating with the Soviets in going to the moon. And I really, yeah. I, I want you to differentiate. No, no, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying I disagree with that. What I'm saying is, is that, that I don't think that is the approximate reason why he was killed which is what we're talking about. Uh, I know he was very clearly making massive moves to establish a completely new relationship with the Soviet Union and the United States. That's all true. And the, the, but the disassembly of the nuclear weapons on both sides of that, uh, and to draw them into a collaboration uh, that was going to be, you, you have to take a look at that. Remember, you've got to take a look at in 1992, at the end of the Cold War, after the after the uh, signing of the uh, the agreement on the part of uh, Gorbachev on December 31st of 1991 to release all of the the uh, republics of the Soviet Union, uh, the, the the very next Monday morning, uh, under George Bush Sr., who remember that as of as of uh, January of 1992 was uh, was a president was, was president of the United States. That the and the Secretary of Defense was Dick Cheney, uh, and uh, Paul Wolfowitz was his deputy. Paul Wolfowitz gathered together at the, in the West Wing of Paul Wolfowitz and uh, and Elliot Abrams and Doug Fife uh, and uh, and the others, and they put together a thing called the United States Defense Department Policy Planning Guidance Document. This was the whole reorganization of the U.S. military uh, in light of the Soviet Union agreeing to step back out of the Cold War. Uh, and George Bush Sr. and Theodore Shackley, his uh, director of worldwide covert operations with the CIA, they drafted a second draft of that, which actually proposed an alliance uh, among the United States, Canada, Mexico, not the indigenous people of Mexico, but the pre, which is the Spanish Castilian Spanish, mm. the UK, France, Spain, Italy, the new reunified Germany, and Russia, uh, if they chose to join, uh, now that they had spun off all of their ethnic provinces. That's what the document said, uh, and that they would be forming a new thing called the New Northern Industrial Alliance. <laughs> and this is in direct, direct keeping, direct keeping uh, with with the, the with the proposal that was being made uh, in the uh, uh, what's the name the guy that wrote the Clash of Civilizations uh, and the remaking of world order. Ken, uh, Ken. No, no. Uh, uh, we all we all know who we're talking about here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was I was keep confusing him with B. F. Skinner, but uh, no. the. Uh, Samuel P. Huntington. 
Samuel P. Huntington wrote a major article in the Foreign Affairs uh, magazine for the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, right in 1992, right at the end of the Cold War, you know, absolutely proposing that the Western powers, including Russia, could get back together again, who are all the major Caucasian nations. Uh, and that what they do is they organize themselves and gird their loins to, to confront China. Uh, this, this has been the entire play. Every, all the things we're talking about here uh, have to do with China. Uh, and the, all, of the, all of the major elite foreign policy people realized that there was going to be an, inevit- an inevitable confrontation with China. Uh, and the, the, the effort on the part of Kennedy and Khrushchev to disassemble the nuclear warheads uh, of both of those countries uh, the, this, this foreign policy elite that, that was at base in, in Brown Brothers Harriman uh, with guys like Robert Lovett and, and George Herbert Walker and uh, Rockefeller and, uh, and the, du- the DuPonts uh, and E.H. Uh, Harriman, all of these guys, these guys sat in actual meetings together uh, planned to, to not allow this to happen. Uh, and that is who Dulles was a functionary of. He was the consigliere for this group of people. That's why they created the Central Intelligence Agency, pursuant to the memo from Robert Lovett to Truman. And that is why uh, Alan Dulles was made the first uh, civilian director of the CIA. Uh, and that's, that's why they killed him, because he, he was so traumatized by how close they came. And on that October night uh, of destroying civilization, that he and Khrushchev were working together secretly, exchanging these letters through Norman Cousins, who was delivering the, web, the, the letters to to uh, to disassemble the nuclear warheads. And that's why they killed him and, and killed him uh, as fast as they could. And they had the team that was prepared to do it uh, and they deployed them to do it. Uh, and uh, that's that's how they did it. Tell you what, hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning, Danny Sheehan. In the next half hour, we're going to hear from Barbara, and she's got some very interesting collateral perspectives on a kind of a common history that we do agree on. But um, don't discount the moon. And I will come back with some additional evidence in support of that idea when we uh, return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't touch that dial.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight. For this Sunday night, October 3rd, 2021, my two guests this morning are Daniel Sheehan, who has a very interesting uh, uh, background and career and has been heavily involved in trying to figure out what the Kennedy assassination ultimately means, not only in terms of uh, who did it, but why they did it, and... um, Obviously, as we get further on in the morning, the implications for history in what Washington always calls euphemistically the out years. Uh, Barbara, we have Barbara Honiger with us, who, of course, was a uh, policy analyst in the Reagan White House. Uh, Barbara, um, do you have anything to add or to split off from uh, Danny's uh, assessment of the reasons, the real reasons that Kennedy was killed? Well, if if you'll allow me, I'd like to drop a couple of bombshells, and then I'll answer that question. Okay. Okay. Um, There is a man by the name of Gordon Ferry, whom I met at the JFK conference in Dallas. Um, This year, I will be speaking there again for the fourth or fifth year in a row. And I've just been amazingly uh, voted unanimously onto the board of the JFK conference. Oh, congratulations. Well, thank you. That was quite a surprise. Um, And I met this gentleman, Gordon Ferry, um, after one of my presentations uh, uh, three years ago. And as soon as I was down from the podium, um, I, he, he came up to me and he looks like James Bond. And uh, he said, we have to talk. So we went into the quarter, uh, and the rest of the conference went on, and we were two chairs in a corner like two uh, how computers going back and forth for hours. <laughs> the bottom line, I have now interviewed him at length. Um, I have those interviews on audio, which I can share uh, in the future. And I highly recommend having this person on your show. And the reason is, it turns out that Gordon Ferry, no relationship, he assures us to the other Ferry. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Thanks for clearing no. that up. Spelled the same, but but not no direct relation. Maybe back, you know, generations or hundreds of years somewhere. But anyway, uh, turns out Gordon Ferry was. Um, now I'm saying this in lay terms. Now he has a special word for it. 
but he was the uh, banker for CIA covert operations oh. for the government's covert operations. And he explained to me, it kind of was a surprise. Um, he said, um, he said, Barbara, are you aware that um, when the CIA or some branch of the government, including the military, wants to do something, and um, they don't want Congress to know about it, and they don't have the money in their black budget even, they have to take out a loan. And I was that banker that they went to. So you can imagine the stories that this man has. But the bombshell I want to drop is, and maybe Danny already knows about this, but I certainly didn't. Um, recently, as recently as five years ago, Gordon Terry uh, got a call from uh, a man by the name of Jack Worthington. And it turns out that Jack Worthington is an illegitimate son of JFK. And he, um, the mother was a very, he gave me the name of the mother, I can't remember, but she was extremely uh, well-connected with the CIA and the mafia in uh, Texas. I don't believe in Dallas, but in one of the, uh, I think Houston. In any case, um, she and her current husband, I don't know if she's still alive, but I mean, after, uh, she had, she had Jack Worthington before uh, JFK married Jackie. And Gordon Ferry met with Jack Worthington at Jack Worthington's request because they knew each other for seven hours uh, about five years ago. So I recommend having him on the show. The other bombshell I want to drop is, I don't think I've ever mentioned, or maybe I have, I don't think I've ever thought to tell Danny that um, when I was working with Mae Brussel, and I want to get into the Nazi connections to the JFK assassination, Mm -hmm. and this is not to question anything that Danny has said about Traficante's 15 assassin team, but there is a clear uh, Nazi connection to this that we'll get into here in a second. Um, And I've laid all these uh, sources and links and videos about it in my items under Barbara's items for tonight's show. So people at their leisure, your listeners and you at your leisure need to go to those and take them seriously. But I don't think I've ever mentioned to Danny and I'm not sure I have on this show and I've been on it, you know, a lot. Um, I don't think I ever mentioned that I interviewed with John McCone. Oh um, my, tell people who he is. Yeah. Well, JFK appointed John as the CIA director right after firing Alan Dulles. And it turns out that John McCone, he's now deceased, um, but he lived here in Pebble Beach, California, the Monterey Peninsula where I live and also where Danny Sheehan lives in Santa Cruz. And I live in Carmel Valley, but Pebble Beach is, uh, you know, right close to Carmel, California on the water. And uh, John McCone lived there. And... uh, at the end of my year or so working with Mae Brussel, who, of course, was famous for her articles and radio shows on the Nazi connections uh, to the JFK assassination, um, she got cancer, and she knew she was going to have to stop working. So she said, I needed to find another position. So I went to a place in an agency in Monterey, California. And within about a week, uh, with my background in the White House and Department of Justice and and many other things that I've done, I got a call from the placement agency saying they had just, you know, the, the greatest possible match. And I said, oh, great. Well, who is it? And they said, well, we can't tell you. 
but I'll give you the address. <laughs> so, uh, so I drove, you know, I got the address. I think it was a couple of days later. And I've been in Pebble Beach many times. Danny probably has as well. We both live here in the Monterey Peninsula in California. So I drove into Pebble Beach and I found the address. And before I turned in the driveway, uh, this was in uh, this was in the late summer of 1988, because May Russell died on October 8th of 1988. And um, so I drove. So as I approached the address and I saw the sign on the road, there was a uh, some some people who like to name their property. You know, like uh, I don't know, Brigadoon Cottage mm-hmm. is the name of my house. So his house was named Blue Light. And I immediately, because I had already done my work on October Surprise at that point, um, I hadn't published my book yet, but I had done most of the research for it. I happened to know that Blue Light, one of the uh, one of the references to Blue Light in the covert community, both military and intelligence in the United States, um, was to one of two hostage rescue teams that was quickly and uh, kind of urgently created by our intelligence and military with the Iran hostage crisis. And the blue light team did not get the job. Um, There was another team that got the job and botched the job. But there's another reference to blue light, and that is to the military intelligence community's very top secret um, uh, high-resolution holography um, program. And so I knew that before I even drove up the driveway. And then I drove up the driveway, and there was a modest (laughs) uh, California single-story house. And I went, knocked on the door, and a very nice middle-aged lady uh, opened the door. And I had been told that I would be interviewing with his current uh, assistant, his editorial assistant, uh, and that if I passed muster with her, that then I would find out who it was I was interviewing with. So she took me into her office that was piled high with papers and books. And um, it wasn't long before she said, well, you're, you're, you know, immensely qualified, you know. So, yes, you will be able to meet Mr. Uh, the, the, you, will, you will learn who you're meeting when he introduces himself. <laughs> Gosh. So she takes me into the living room and she sits me down. She says, I'll probably be back. I've got some work to do. He's on the phone. It'll be between 10 and 20 minutes. Make yourself comfortable here. There are a couple of magazines on the coffee table, and she left. She said, I'll come back for you shortly. And I didn't wasn't interested in the magazines on the coffee table, but I was interested in one thing on the coffee table, and I still didn't know who I was going to be interviewing with. It was all quite mysterious. And there was a small, what looked like a cigarette box on the table that was of silver. And I picked it up because I could tell that it had some kind of Uh, engraving on it and so I picked it up and turned it around because it was facing away from me so I could read it and the engraving was to John McCone from (laughs) President John F. Kennedy Mm. and that was on the outside and then you opened the lid and on the inside of the lid it was words to the effect I, I, I didn't have a cell phone where I could take the photograph didn't have a camera with me probably would have been kicked out of the place if I'd been found taking a photograph of it. But the gist of what was on the inside, also engraved, was words to the effect, 
um, to John J. McCone for your courageous actions saving the Republic or saving America. Wow. Okay. So then I was, uh, then I was, after about another 10 minutes, she came back and uh, took me into a room that turned out to be very close to her as I opened the door. She opened the door, I went in. And there was this elderly gentleman with kind of very shocking, uh, you know, very uh, kind of eminent uh, appearing. And um, there were books and papers piled absolutely everywhere. I mean, it, it was... It was very difficult to imagine how he could have even gotten out from around behind his bed. <laughs> and, uh, and he explained to me that the job was helping him complete his memoirs. And, and uh, so I said, well, these are memoirs about what? And he said, well, um, you haven't been told who I am. And I said, no, I haven't been told who you are. And he said, well, I'm John McCone. I was President John F. Kennedy's director. Let, let, let me ask you one question. Were you familiar with his name when you looked in the cigarette lighter? No. Did you know who he was? No. Ah, okay. I mean, I might have known, but I didn't put two and two together see, until, until he told me in his office. Okay. okay. Now, what's very interesting about me, I'm a quintessential outsider. And so the moment he told me who he was, I made the decision then and there that I would never come back, okay? Because I, some, something deep within me said, if you take this job, your life's never going to be free. That was so, smart. And I didn't. Um, I, I learned about the memoirs. I learned that he was about halfway through. And I may be one of the few people on the planet who knows that John McCone wrote memoirs. And guess what? Um, I have checked. I have checked Amazon. I have checked Abe.com. I have even gone to uh, specialists in rare books. And I cannot find any memoirs or any book by John McCone. Mm. That's the John McCone. And you know that John McCone's memoirs is CIA director um, after, you know, after he fired Dulles and at the time of the JFK assassination, you know that his memoirs had to have been, had to go through CIA pre-publication review. And apparently John McCone's memoirs are still gettable through an FOIA lawsuit, which I'm now pursuing. Okay. Hmm. All right. So they, they were never published. Not that I can find. So they're deep somewhere in the CIA under review. That's a long review. Well, <laughs> they're probably with the National Archives now. Um, but who knows? Um, there is something in those archive, in those memoirs that the CIA does not want anybody to know. Danny, did, did you know any of this? No. I mean, I, I know about John McCone, and I know that that he was the one that brought, was brought in after Dulles was uh, retired. Uh, and I know that, that uh, virtually none of the people high up in the agency uh, talked to him uh, or really would share anything with him because they, they uh, didn't view him as part of their, their elite 
more. Mm. Mm. Uh, and they, they continued to meet with Dulles over at his uh, townhouse in Georgetown, <laughs> just as though he were still the CIA director. Uh, because, really yeah, because, because he, his source of power uh, hadn't changed. He was still the legal counsel for Brown Brothers Harriman. He was still their consigliere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was still a partner in Sullivan and Cromwell. Uh, and so he was still at this the height of power. Uh, and McCone uh, came in. Uh, there's, there's a lot of discussion about what McCone did or didn't do. Uh, again, in David Traub's book. Uh, would you would you like to would you like to see would you like to see his diary or his uh, memoirs? Oh yeah, no, you, you'd, you'd want you'd want to see his. You want to see Mary Mary's. You want to see uh, you know. Uh, there's several people, uh, Angletons. You'd like to see if Angleton James has, Jesus yeah, yeah, Angleton. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they, but they, but most of those people don't don't really say things in their in their memoirs that are the key things you need to know about. So, Barbara, uh, on, on on this yeah. suit, uh, what are your odds? When did you file it? And climate? What do you think the odds are? Well, I haven't filed the suit. I do have an attorney who specializes in all things FOIA in the JFK assassination. I won't give his name on the air because uh, I want him to live and help me do this. Right. <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I'd, I'd like to move forward to answer your question, um, which is I, I'd like to to bring us into uh, the the focus here a little bit. The um, the evidence for Nazi links to the JFK assassination and maybe maybe increasing the importance of the moon's connection. And um, so if I know that Cynthia is still probably putting up uh, many of my um, links. <laughs> Let me go look. <laughs> um, yeah, there are a lot of them. That but that's because I think it's very important for people to educate themselves yes, yes. about the um, the Lemnitzer Nazi uh, Scorzetti. Oh my God! Uh, you got Dr. Mary Monkey. Yeah. So all of those links, all of those books, all of those videos um, that I highly recommend people take the time to read and watch are going to be eventually, if they're not already up in my items for tonight's show, Barbara's Items. Um, but I would like to to bring into focus a very important book that we've talked about on your show before, Richard, and that is the Scorzeni Papers. And as you know, I arranged for uh, U.S. Air Force retired Major Ralph Gannis, who wrote the Scorzeni Papers, evidence uh, for the, and I add, Nazi, Nazi links to the plot to kill JFK, um, this is a very, very, very important book. And uh, the, 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 the reason that I think the Nazi connection is so terribly important is precisely because of Alan Dulles and the CIA's and Otto Scordeni's and Theodore Shackley's um, connections um, to the stay-behind uh, operation, uh, the training of the special operations assassin commandos by Otto, Otto Scordeni and Theodore Shackley's network in the wake of World War II. You read about all this in the Scordeni papers, and 
Um, you will see that in my items. Just, just uh, to clear up a point of historical importance for people who don't read history, uh, Scorzani was the guy that was sent to rescue Mussolini, right? Yes. Well, Scorzani was Hitler's chief of the, his very top commando, his special operations commando, throughout World War II. And after World War II, uh, I believe Danny could correct me about a year and a half to two years later, Otto Scorzani was brought over to the other side, uh, and he was basically uh, set up training uh, commando assassin teams, uh, not just for the United States and Britain, but also, this is very interesting, isn't it, the new Israeli state. Oh, um, the Mossad. The Mossad. Uh, and Danny, Danny is very, very, very um, aware of this and has researched it at great length. And he could speak more to that. But it's very important for people to read the Scorzeni papers. According to the actual, uh, Scorzeni left um, a whole bunch of documents that ended up through a, an auction uh, in the hands of uh, probably the most the, the the best possible person in the world to read them and analyze them. And that is uh, retired U.S. Air Force Major Ralph Gannis, whom we have had on the program. Both he and you and I were on a show a few years ago, uh, Richard. And um, what's important about that is that you learn that uh, Scorzani had uh, already set up uh, an operation in Dallas uh, many, many years before the Kennedy assassination, and he was activated for the Kennedy assassination. Now, what uh, what particular uh, involvement did he have with the Traficanti of 15? I don't know, um, but um, probably a lot. Um, so, in my in my items, um, you will. Under the section, the Nazi links to the JFK assassination, uh, there is the video of my presentation to the Dallas JFK conference on November 22nd, 2019, after which Gordon Ferry raced up and said, we have to talk. And he was the CIA's banker for covert operations, uh, one of them. Uh, and then this is very important, and I, I would like Danny to speak to this. I'm going to read one paragraph here. Um, there is a section in Danny Sheehan's book called The People's Advocate, which I highly recommend everyone on the planet read. Yeah, that's item uh, number one in your items tonight. Uh, well, I, I, I put it under... Actually, Danny's it's actually it's number two. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah no. I said it to Kinsia because I wasn't sure Danny would get any items uh, in time. So um, The People's Advocate by Daniel Sheehan. This is a very important book. Uh, and in particular, I want to raise what I consider the most important few pages in that book and have Danny uh, give you more details about it uh, because it's so critical. Um, these are pages uh, towards the end of the book in the Iran-Contra section um, in, uh, where Danny uh, relates what he was told in his Washington, D.C. office, then the Christic Institute office, by, as I recall, um, the gentleman, uh, Mr. Burke Holdersmith, who was at the time the deputy station chief of the CIA in Mexico City, uh, right after Burke Holdersmith had returned from a meeting with top Nazi leaders at their headquarters in Argentina, after having been told by a top aide to George Bush Sr. 
that Burkholder Smith would have to be vetted and approved by these top Nazis in order to retain his position with the CIA. Now, what's fascinating to me about that is that, oh, and I should add that in this section of Danny's book, The People's Advocate, you learn that the one requirement that global Nazi leadership down in Argentina had for Burkholder Smith was to make a solemn pledge not to interfere with their product for their with their profits from narcotics trafficking around the world. Now, what's important to me about this part of the book is that I believe it can be inferred from this that George Bush Sr., after whom, after all, the CIA headquarters is named, right? Mm. And Alan Dulles was head of the CIA, John McCone was head of the CIA, etc. I think it can be inferred from this reasonably that George Bush Sr. required similar vetting and approval of most or maybe even all of his CIA station chiefs and deputy station chiefs, deputy station chiefs around the world. And uh, that wouldn't be surprising seeing as Bush Sr., his father was Hitler's banker in New York. Okay? So um, effectively, uh, the kind of bottom line to me about this is that we can also infer from this uh, that Bush Sr. was under the global Nazi leadership. In other words, Hitler and Martin Bormann's New World Order. Um, or, or as, as I think uh, Mars called it, the Fourth Reich. The Fourth Reich, yes. And May Russell also held a conference that I spoke at called The Fourth Reich. And I highly recommend uh, uh, Jim Mars's book called The Fourth Reich in America. Uh, I meant to put that on the list, so I will send it to Kinsia to add to that. So if there's anything else that Danny uh, Sheehan could enlighten us about, about what Burkholder Smith told him, I think it's critically, critically important. Sure. Uh, there's, there's a little bit of uh, time sequencing. It's a little bit different. The, okay. the, 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 the bottom, bottom line is I, I spoke with, uh, with Joseph Burkholder Smith uh, actually in a, in a side room off the Dubliner Cafe uh, oh, in Washington, okay. D.C. Uh, and I was introduced to him by Dick Billings who was the chief staff writer for the House Select Committee on Assassinations. He was also the man who was in charge of the, uh, the investigation for Life magazine uh, on the day of the assassination in Dallas. He's the guy who helped supervise getting the, uh, the Zapruder tape, actually, for Life magazine. You mean film? Uh, film. Uh, the, the film, yeah, the film. <laughs> and he was, was right. Back in the primitive was, film era. Back yes. in the primitive days, yeah. And, and so that he was, he's the guy that introduced me to Joseph Burkholder Smith. And, uh, uh, we met, we met, uh, there at the, the Dubliner Cafe. It was on like about June 3rd or so of 1986. Uh, and the, the, uh, the events that he was telling me about had occurred back in 1973, uh, like some 13 years earlier. Uh, and, and he hadn't told people about it. Uh, but the, the, the bottom line is, is that when uh, Theodore Shackley, uh, Theodore Shackley, as, as we all know, is, is an absolutely critical person to understand, to understand the connections here. Because that in addition to his having been the CIA station chief in Miami 
that had supervisory authority over the 15-man assassination team that was originally put together by Richard Nixon uh, with the assistance of Howard Hughes to assassinate uh, Fidel Castro and Raul Castro and Che Guevara, uh, that uh, Shackley had uh, had previously been the, the major deputy to Reinhard Galen. Reinhard Galen was the Waffen-SS Third Reich uh, commander of all anti-Soviet and anti-Eastern Bloc intelligence, the Third Reich. And uh, he's the fellow who turned himself in to the 101st Counterintelligence Corps uh, Im- immediately after the uh, surrender mm. uh, of, of the Germans uh, in, in Germany. I'll tell you what, we, uh, got a, we have a break yeah. coming up. We will continue yeah. this on the other side. My guests this morning are Danny Sheehan and Barbara Honiger, and we're going through step-by-step laying foundation, as lawyers love to say, of the idea that the Kennedy assassination was part of a much larger plan of the Fourth Reich to literally destroy the United States of America in the crib, as it were, in the middle of the Cold War, and thereby manipulate and guide and ultimately birth a fascist state where once the American dream stood. We shall flesh out this idea in a few moments. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Sunday night here in the land of enchantment. My guests this morning are Danny Sheehan and Barbara Honiger. 
And Danny was in the middle of telling us the details of the unraveling of an extraordinary plot, a 58-year plot, in my opinion, to undermine and ultimately destroy the Constitutional Republic of the United States and replace it with a fascist state. Danny, you're on again. Well, okay. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not clear to me that, it, that that's the, the right analysis of this, but let me, let me uh, tell you what happened exactly. That what, what happened is that, uh, uh, that Dick Billings uh, said he wanted to, there's a per- person who wanted to meet with me to talk to me about this because I had named Theodore Shackley as one of the principal conspirators in, uh, in establishing the off-the-shelf enterprise. Uh, that was Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North and Dick Secord and, and Hakeem and the rest of the people that you all heard about during the Iran-Contra scandal. Uh, and that uh, I had filed a complaint against them. And uh, so uh, Dick Billings came to my office and told me that there was a man who wanted to talk with me about this. Uh, so uh, we set up a meeting for me to go meet uh, this fellow. I didn't know who it, who it was uh, at the time of setting up the meeting, but we go in and we, uh, I walk into the, the, the side room there at the, uh, the Dubliner Cafe. I say it's about June 3rd or so of 1986. Uh, I walk in and, uh, and Dick Billings says, uh, Danny Sheehan, uh, this is uh, Joe Smith. Joe Smith, Danny Sheehan. So I shook his head. I said, yeah, right, great. Joe Smith. He said, no, 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 look. He said, I get this a lot. My name is Joseph Burkholder Smith, and I was the deputy CIA station chief back in 1973, which is like 13 years earlier, uh, uh, when Theodore Shackley uh, was pulled out of Vietnam as CIA station chief in Saigon uh, and made the head of Western Hemisphere operations. Uh, And when he came on board, uh, he removed all of the uh, all of the station chiefs uh, in all of the, the CIA stations in the Western Hemisphere, uh, asserting that uh, Phil Agee, uh, a CIA person who was getting ready to write a book that was later called Inside the Company, uh, and uh, he was concerned. Uh, Shackley said that he knew the names of station chiefs and they might be uh, compromised. And so using that excuse, Shackley had removed all of the station chiefs in all of the Western Hemisphere stations, including Mexico City. And, uh, and the fellow he'd appointed was uh, Tom Polgar. And uh, Polgar had come into, into the office of Joseph Burkholder-Smith and said, uh, Joe, I don't know if I'm going to be able to leave you on here, my deputy. Uh, there's going to be somebody coming in tomorrow morning, uh, right around 10 o'clock, to your office. Uh, you'll recognize him. Uh, and that he's going to ask you some questions. You don't have to answer the questions if you don't want, but, you know, it's going to depend on whether you answer these questions as to whether you're going to be left on as my deputy. And the next morning he said that into his office walked uh, Nasser Haro. Nasser Haro is the head of the DFS in Mexico, which is a combination of the FBI and the CIA. Uh, and he came in and he said, uh, uh, good morning, Joe. He said, I imagine Polgar told you that I was coming. And, uh, and, uh, Smith said yeah, to him, well, you know, he didn't tell me who it was, but I do recognize you. He said I would. Uh, and so, uh, that, uh, he, 
So he, he says to him, uh, Nasser Haro says, look, there's some people that would like to ask you some questions. Uh, and uh, depending on how you answer these questions, it's going to control whether you're going to be left on here as the deputy, the pole guard. Uh, would you come with me to meet these people? And uh, so Burkholder Smith said he would. And so they, they left the headquarters, went down, got into the, this little uh, uh suburban with you know smoke glass windows and went to the mexico city airport this is now in in 1973 it'd be late december uh this uh he had he had already come on his station so it must be like by early february of 74 that this must have happened uh, uh because uh, shackley was pulled out of saigon in december of 73 i believe uh and then he spent some time on the israeli desk uh temporarily because they had to yank him out of uh, Saigon at such short notice because he was getting set to be investigated by Creighton Abrams for uh, directing the assassination of a South Vietnamese CIA guy. Hmm. The bottom line is, though, he, he ends up uh, coming on his Western Hemisphere head, puts in Polgar, uh, this Nasser Haro comes to see him, and they go down, they, uh, go down to the Mexico airport, and they go around security and get in this uh, Learjet, and they fly uh, out of Mexico City, and they fly and fly and fly, and they end up landing in Buenos Aires in Argentina. Wow. Uh, they get out, they get out of the, the Learjet and go around and get into the helicopter, and they fly all the way up into the northwesternmost corner of Argentina, and they uh, they land in this little town called Salta uh, on what looks like uh, this soccer field. Hmm. He said, and uh, they land on the soccer field. He gets out follows Nasser Haro across the soccer field and up this embankment. And he looked over the embankment and he said, you know, I looked over the embankment down there and I thought I was in Bavaria, he said. Uh, he said, so, so Nasser Haro leads him down into this little town, this little like Bavarian town there in northern, northwest Argentina. And he goes into this Bavarian inn and there are these six guys sitting at this big oaken table, you know, uh, in front of this great big huge stone fireplace. And up on the mantelpiece over the fireplace uh, is the swastika flag. Uh, and this is like you know, <laughs> February of 1974. Uh, and uh, the, the guy in the middle gestures for Burkholder Smith to sit down. And so he sits down across the table from them. And they said, they said look, Joe, um, look, we've, we've gone to a, a lot of trouble to set up this major cocaine cartel down in Colombia. And we're going to be moving cocaine into the United States. And a portion of those profits are going to be used to finance our war without boundaries against your enemies and ours. And I just wanted to make sure that you're not going to do anything to interfere with this uh, this trafficking if you're going to be left on as a deputy. <laughs> and Burkholder Smith said to me, uh, and, and Danny, he said, I swear to God, I don't know anything I'd done that ever would have led them to believe that I was going to go along with that. And I said to him, maybe how about being the deputy CIA station chief in Mexico City for a start, I said. And he, he, got, he got kind of flummoxed, and he turned to Dick Billings, and he said, hey, uh, I thought he was going to cooperate with us. And Billings said, look, I just met the guy. He said, uh, and so, so Burkholder Smith gets up and walks all the way around the table and sticks his hand out. I reach up to shake his hand, and he leans over and looks at me in the eye, and he says, if you're going to go after Theodore Shackley and his people, I just wanted to let you know who you're really dealing with. Fascinating. Well, finish the story, Danny. What happened down in Argentina? Well, uh, well, that that was that was it. I mean, that's that's what he told me. 
Uh, he got out alive. I was just going to say, how did he get out alive? Well, no, he just he ended up he ended up just uh, deciding he wasn't going to stay on uh, as uh, as Polgar's deputy. Uh, he re- he retired. I went down and saw him later. I, I went to his home and met with him and his wife and had dinner with him at his home down in Florida. And I up. Uh, I was out seeing Gaetan Fonsi. We all met together, and so that uh, that's so. From that moment on, I realized. You know, what it was is I started looking deeper into Shackley and, and came to realize that Shackley had been uh, assigned. Uh, well, it turns out Shackley uh, had been the, the translator. He was in the 101st Counterintelligence Corps in the U.S. Army uh, in World War II. And when, when uh, Reinhard Galen, who was the commander of the Third Reich's anti-Soviet and anti-Eastern Bloc intelligence, turned himself in to the Allies, to the 101st Counterintelligence Corps, uh, in Italy, uh, he brought with him, uh, he had, he had microfished, uh, all of the files on the, uh, on the stay behinds, all the people that were left all throughout Europe and in the Eastern Bloc countries and in the Soviet Union that were spies for the fascists, a lot of the white Russians and stuff over around St. Petersburg and stuff. He had all of their contact information and he agreed that, uh, if the United States would uh, take him off the Nuremberg war crum- criminal list and his hundred men. Uh, they had a hundred guys. They, they took off the Nuremberg war crime trim- tribunal list, uh, and they were part of what they called the Galen organization. Uh, and they made Galen the head of the West, the new West German intelligence, uh, where he served for 26 years hmm. uh, as the principal source of intelligence against the Soviet Union for the West for the Western Allies uh, in Shackley. The enemy of my worked, enemy is my friend. Yeah, and Shackley uh, worked with him as his translator uh, and came with him to Fort Hunt. When uh, they flew him from Italy to Fort Hunt outside of Washington, D.C., and they carried on these months. Okay, we don't have infinite time. Danny, Danny, you yeah. know, we, we could go on for days. This is incredibly sure. interesting, but I want to get yeah. to some salient points. When I made reference, uh, you know, at the last break that I thought, my own research, that the, that the death of Kennedy was part of a long-term plan to basically, you know, amplify fascism around the world. Look at what's happened in the last 58 years. We have fascist governments in Hungary. We have fascist governments in, in, the, in the Western, I'm sorry, yeah, the Western Pacific. We've got, you know, fascism rising around the world. We just went through an experience which, if you didn't know that, you know, Donald Trump was president, you would have think he was fearless leader. And I have it on very good authority, a la the court system of the state of New York, that uh, during one of his uh, divorce, you know, altercations, that his nightly reading was Mein Kampf on the bedside table. So, so let's go to Barbara. Barbara, am I crazy or... <clears throat> Did the fascist turning of the world, modern era, begin with the death of John Kennedy? Well, they killed John Kennedy so that they could continue their new world order. And they couldn't, because the Nazis, this is my opinion, my informed opinion, um, because the, the whole Galen Org and the whole Nazi organization, the Project Paperclip, basically are, are uh you know, our, our NASA and our space program was run by Werner von Braun and the Nazis. Um, 
basically, uh, you know, Nazis are us, you know, like toys are us, Nazis are us. Uh, and seriously, and um, the deep state uh, is the Nazis. It is the mentality of the Nazis, whether, you know, obviously the Hitler era Nazis uh, have almost certainly all died. Um, uh, they would be in their 90s or up into 100. Uh, there might be a few still alive. Um, but the reason they had to kill Kennedy was because he was basically um, going to make nice with the enemy of the Nazis. Which he was, was going to end the Cold War. He was going to end the Cold War. He was going mm-hmm. to undo everything that uh, Hitler was trying to do when he invaded the Soviet Union, et cetera, et cetera. And they couldn't tolerate it. So um, they got rid of Kennedy. But I actually believe the big turning point um, for everything that is happening today with 9-11. Um, because with 9-11, the masks came off. Um, they... They, 9-11 was the Reichstag fire, especially mm-hmm. the Pentagon Um The invasion Including of, this uh, insane term, homeland security. Every yeah, time I hear you, that. Where have you heard about homeland security? Homeland, I, I, homeland. I, I, I basically shudder when I hear, hear homeland security because it's so, it's so Hitlerian. Absolutely, it's Hitlerian, and the USA Patriot Act was like Hitler's enabling act. Uh, the Reichstag fire was especially the Pentagon attack, but also, of course, the World Trade Center attack. And the invasion of Afghanistan was a, was based on the false flag of 9-11, just like Hitler's invasion of Czechoslovakia was based on a false flag. And you can go on and on and on in the creation of Heimland Security um, and the the surveillance police state. All of it. it the, the mask came off after 9-11. And I want to remind people that, you know, I'm the author of the book October Surprise about how the Republicans uh, stole the election in 1980 from Carter uh, with their treasonous secret deal with the Ayatollah Khomeini to delay the release of our 52 hostages in exchange for at least um, proven $5 billion worth of arms that flowed long before. Which brought in the guy you worked for. Yes, well, I was the first public resignation of conscience from the Reagan White House, by the way, uh, to about 10 days of international publicity. So, well, look, it's, it was re- what's really important, I think, for people to understand is that, that the fascism is what we're talking about. I mean, we, we make the mistake, right. I think, of referring to them as all Nazis, because no, people yes. associate the Nazis with Germany themselves. But they, they need to understand that it was it was the Union Bank of New York that yes. was set up by George Herbert Walker. Who was the C- who was the CEO of Brown Brothers Harriman? Uh, he retired from being the CEO of Brown Brothers Harriman in this cabal of these robber barons that were all gathered together there that owned the major shares of stock in all the major industries in the United and States. George Bush Senior's father, correct? And yeah, and George George uh, George Herbert Walker. Well, no, George Herbert Walker was the father-in-law of Prescott Bush. That, uh, that George Herbert Walker is the guy who was the CEO. Uh, jo- uh, uh, Prescott Bush married his oldest daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when, uh, when in 1924, George Herbert Walker retired as the CEO of Brown Brothers Harriman uh, and turned it over to Prescott Bush, who was, in fact, the father 
of George Herbert Walker Bush uh, and the grandfather of George W. Bush. Yeah. Uh, George Walker Bush. That's the, the so, George, so George Herbert Walker was the guy. And what he did in 1924, he stepped up as, as being the CEO for Brown Brothers Harriman and set up a thing called the Union Bank of New York. Uh, and the capitalization of the Union Bank of New York came from the people that were all investors in Brown Brothers Harriman. All of those 20-some families that were there. They financed the Union Bank of New York. The Union Bank of New York set up a subsidiary bank up in the Netherlands. It was called the Bank of Shipping and Commerce, uh, and it was run by a guy by the name of Fritz Thyssen. And Fritz Thyssen in the Union in the, uh, the Bank of Shipping and Commerce, it was the subsidiary of the Union Bank of New York, set up by George Herbert Walker, is the one who financed the rise of the Third Reich in Germany. Okay. They, they financed the, the, the construction of the major international headquarters of the Third Reich. They financed the, the rise of the Third Reich. And in the meeting that took place on January 3rd of 1933, the meeting in which Hitler became the chancellor of Germany, uh, that uh, Alan Dulles was sitting in that meeting. Uh, and as soon as Hitler agreed to sign an agreement and he would, he would assume responsibility for paying the reparations, that were set forth in the Versailles Treaty that, uh, that Alan Dulles signed off on behalf of Brown Brothers Harriman uh, to allow him to become the chancellor of Germany. Uh, and because the, the loans had been given to Germany by Brown Brothers Harriman to pay mm-hmm. off the reparations that had been put into the Versailles Treaty. So these connections are totally solid, totally verifiable. Totally. Let me me ask you a question here, because, again, time is fugiting. There's something I really need to add uh, before the top of the show, too. Well, can I ask a question? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Sure. Sure. It's only my show. How does Deutsche Bank, the current Deutsche Bank, fit into this matrix? Well, Deutsche Bank, it's, it's weird. The, the Deutsche Bank, of course, is, is the one that is, is the key bank, uh, you know, that is, has been involved in floating all the loans to Donald Trump. Exactly. And the, the, that's right. And the, and the, so, so you have to keep, you can't jump too far ahead or else people get totally confused. But the, the, the bottom line to understand is that fascism, uh, the, the key documents of fascism were written by, by Benito Mussolini. And Mussolini wrote a, a big, long tra- treatise on fascism. But what fascism is, is the wedding of the interests of major privately owned corporations with the instrumentalities of the state. Yep. And putting the instrumentalities of the state at the disposal of the interests of the major corporations. And the corporations remain owned by wealthy, powerful families. Which uh, is what the CIA does. <laughs> and, this, and that the CIA was set up to, to promulgate and foster fascism around the world. And, and they yeah. used the, the rubric of anti-communism. But, but the reality is that these people were engaged in a, a major campaign, uh, uh, a major campaign to establish you know, a capitalism and fascism around the world. And people even knew about it. It was called the age of American imperialism. And you had all the imperial activities of the, uh, of the, of the United Kingdom uh, with the uh, East India Corporation, you know, all of the setting up of the Belgian Congo, uh, 
the uh, French West Africa. You know, you had all of you had all of these major European Caucasian nations that were engaged in foisting control over the over the world and the resources of the world. This is what actually generated the creation of the of the Soviet Union when they when they withdrew when the Bolsheviks revolted against the Tsar Tsar Nicholas II in Russia. Uh, for having allied himself with World War with World War One, uh, it was the Bolsheviks that overthrew uh, Tsar Nicholas II and withdrew from World War One. And when they when the Bolshevik Revolution set up the revolutionary government in Russia, uh, the United States uh, under the uh, under the Robert Lansing was the Secretary of State under Wilson and Robert Lansing sent in a foreign military expeditionary force into Russia to try to crush the Russian Revolution uh, right from right at the very beginning, which almost nobody talks about in history. But well, Robert, now, Danny, Robert, I, I have to jump in here because yeah, I think you're, you know, your, your uncle I think, I your think grandfather, you know my husband's grandfather was yeah. head of that mission. That's right. And, and so, so that what, what I'm saying is that it's really important to understand that Robert Lansing who was the Secretary of State under Wilson, was the uncle of Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles. So again, and, and I, I, sorry I have to truncate this. Families. Let yeah, me ask again, how does Deutsche Bank, German Bank, figure into this matrix? It's, and then let me have two minutes. Go ahead. Go ahead. The go ahead, Mark. No, go ahead and do it. Tell her. Talk to her about it. Oh, no, you answer that question. I want no. to say something else. Okay. Oh, no. The, 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 it, it's not clear yet. Because Get the closer major, to the mic, please, Danny. Yeah, yeah the, the, major, the major investigations have not really been undertaken yet to find out what the exact contours of the present manifestation of this type of, of fascist alliance uh, is what exactly it looks like right now. So that will, that, that will come out of the January 6th committee, the Insurrection Riot no, Committee? No, no, no. no? They, they are going to. They aren't going to dig into this kind of thing. No, they're not. Uh, I'd like to jump in here. I need to jump in here. Um, In in my items, it's very important for people to understand. Now, this is is my informed uh, analysis. But uh, in my items, uh, you will see uh, my presentation to uh, the JFK conference uh, two years ago, November 22nd. 2019, uh, that was the assassination anniversary day in Dallas. Um, and my, my presentation is called The Real Trump, Long-Awaited Nazi Glorious Leader. And you really need to go look at this. Um, it is my PowerPoint presentation. Uh, it is not just that Donald Trump, um, according to the uh, under oath deposition by his first wife, uh, Ivanka Trump's mother, Ivana Trump, uh, in their divorce proceedings, um, she revealed that um, Donald Trump's bed night, uh, bed, bedside reading uh, was Hitler's compiled speeches. Um, and not only that, but um, I give the link to the article in Vanity Fair uh, where you will read that um, according to Ivanka, Ivana Trump, Ivanka's mother, uh, that um, she gives the names of the individuals who would come into Donald Trump's office, click their heels, do the oh, Heil Hitler. Good grief. Okay. 
uh, and that he was he was referred to as the long-awaited glorious leader, i.e. Fuhrer, uh, by the people who did the Charlottesville March. People need to understand who Donald Trump really is. I want you to go watch that. Yeah, I was looking to see what number it is. Um, um, I don't know because I can't look at my items. The title also, is again? Uh, it's called The Real Trump, colon, Long-Awaited Nazi Glorious Leader. And then there's a link to the YouTube. Okay. I'm, uh, tell you what, <laughs> during the break, I'll try to find it. Uh, otherwise, just go through the list. You know, Barbara has 30-some items tonight. <laughs> so, yes, 30 yeah. items. Yeah. So the, well, so the, they're basically the, books. They're basically just uh, sources for people. Yep, background. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, the, so the question of the Deutsche Bank itself is a is a is a question that needs to get investigated. Uh, and, and the problem is that you cannot rely upon any of the major congressional investigations. You can't rely upon the Justice Department, uh, and you can, certainly can't rely upon any special commission uh, that is appointed by the by the uh, executive branch. To look into these things. These are things that we as citizens have to investigate ourselves. We have to have major independent investigations of these things, or else you're going to get some setup. Yeah, but like we don't have subpoena commission. power, so how can no, private, I, I, how can well, private citizens make any inroads? What you have to have is professional private investigators. That that's what made that's what's made the Christic Institute and our Romero Institute so successful is that we have access to professional licensed uh, class A licensed private investigators that they are able to get at documents like this they're able to get at interviews this is how we we are, were able to to break the Karen Silkwood case this is how we were able to you know get at the Iran Contra stuff to know what was going on there. Uh, that's how we've been able to do this all the time. Most of the people in the public interest community uh, just just uh, are, are, I mean, I love everyone, but they're mostly amateurs. You know, then they, they kind of read things. They read secondhand information and stuff, but they don't do primary field investigation. They don't do field interviews most of the time. Uh, you really need professional organizations to do this, and you can't rely upon the government. Uh, so that that's the key to this thing. If we're going to really be able to dig into this. And Barbara and I have been talking about this for some time, trying to figure out how we can put together responsible funders, you know, with the 501c3 organization like our Romero Institute, which is the progeny of the Christic Institute. Okay. Or, like the or like the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. And we are at the top of the hour, guys and gals. We shall return. My guests this morning are very, very interesting people indeed who do their own homework. And uh, the question I was going to ask before the break, and I'll ask it after, is Danny Sheehan currently looking into the origins and the intricate matrices connected to Donald Trump of Deutsche Bank? It seems to me that's a really important question. We're on the other side of midnight. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Georgia Lambert. We're going to elevate this conversation to eh, 30,000 or 40,000 feet. Big picture, and then we'll return to the nitty-gritty. And I do want to return to the moon. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. Now, Sunday night, Monday morning, here in the Land of Enchantment, my three guests are Barbara Honiger and Danny Sheehan. And we've just been joined by Georgia Lambert, who, as you all know, is our resident metaphysician and I presume has been listening to the last hour or so. So, Georgia, hit us with your best shot. What's your reaction so far? <laughs> Hi, it's good to be with you. Um, Hi, Georgia. Well, Hi, Barbara. Hello, Danny. Hi, Georgia. Uh, um, Of course, uh, you always bring me on when you want to go in a completely different direction. So that's right. (laughs) I've I've been listening to all this fascinating history, and of course, Canad is uh, something completely different, Um, but not really. Uh, Obviously, as we've talked about in so many other shows, we are in a in a bigger struggle between those that want to keep humanity asleep and those that want to take that next step forward. The, uh, the promo for tonight talked about uh, was the murder of the president designed to change the timeline. Yep. And I'd like to speak to why that might be interesting. Why should the timeline be a, a factor? And you'll have to bear with me here for a moment because I have to lay out a model. Um, in the human body, um, there is a network of energy that underlies the human body that the Hindus call the natus system. Um, we could also think of the lines, uh, the meridians of the acupuncture points, that, that sort of thing. And where these lines of light come together, they form a nexus at various points in the body. And in the Eastern system, these are called chakras. They're simply energy centers or nexus. 
As the consciousness of an individual grows and develops, these centers begin to open. In the Eastern tradition, they're shown as lotus flowers, opening uh, a variety number of, of petals, depending on the particular energy center. Now, the thing about these energy centers is that there's a natural sort of membrane or webbing around them so that the higher ones don't open until they're strong enough to absorb what's coming up from the lower centers, which are indicative of lower states of consciousness. The thing about this is that these centers are going to open as human consciousness evolves. But for those forces that want to keep the status quo, they can't stop these centers from opening, but they can open them prematurely. And when they open them prematurely, the energy of the higher center isn't stable enough to absorb what's coming up from below. And that higher energy is dropped and makes the lower even more powerful. That goes on in the human body. This is why in all of the esoteric literature, they're so insistent upon you don't mess around with kundalini because the energy at the base of the tail As it comes up, if it comes up prematurely, it can burn away the webbing, the protective webbing around these centers and take that higher energy and drop it to the lower. Take that model of the human body and transport it to the planet. Esoterically, uh, atomic energy is related to planetary kundalini. And it's been said metaphysically that the kind of atomic testing that goes on puts tears or rents in the etheric webbing of the planet, which means that this next step in consciousness, this new version of reality, these higher dimensions that humanity is opening up to, would be opened up prematurely which means that whoever is doing that would have control on the spin of what's coming. Hmm. And, and, and so, you know, we see the Kennedy assassination as just one piece and a whole lot of stuff that was going on in a very short period of time. I mean, you think about all the, the, the playing with time that was going on. You had the Philadelphia experiment in 1943, even though the story didn't come out till 55. You had Jack Parsons doing weird stuff with L. Ron Hubbard on Mount Palomar. Uh, you had um, parents of Dirk Locke during World War II possibly mysteriously showing up in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania <laughs> in 65. Yep. You, you had whatever weirdness was going on with the Montauk darkness. So you had a lot of stuff from various uh, angles trying to manipulate time. And the question is, why? And the answer to that is, if the opening of human consciousness can't be stopped, if it can be pushed in a direction prematurely then whoever's doing the pushing can control it and can keep humanity asleep 
And I think that's part of what's going on here. Do you remember that great line in Close Encounters where they're twittering back and forth to the aliens hovering in this huge spacecraft and they're using tones? Da, 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 da. And that sure. one, at one point there's a, a controller at the console who says, we're taking control of this conversation now. And he hits a key. And it, it's kind of like that. It's someone, if, if, if you can't the river, Maybe you can divert it in a direction exactly. that you want. Control, again, I go back to the hyperdimensional physics model. Uh, Danny, you oh, have not... Oh, oh, hold on, one more thing. Uh, and, and this may explain why. If it, if it is true that, that the kind of atomic testing that we were doing um, puts rents in the veil prematurely, that might be some explanation of why some of these UFOs shows up, show up over missile silos and shut down the missiles. Interesting, interesting. Um, we know from some of my research and some of uh, Dr. Farrell's research, Joseph Farrell, that that whole string of thermonuclear tests that the U.S. conducted in the South Pacific in the you know 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh it was almost impossible for them to predict the yields according to normal mainstream nuclear physics you know x amount of fuel you the blow yield was much larger than they exactly predicted. and it varied unpredictably but not if you invoke a hyperdimensional model in other words there there's a very famous television show called stargate sg1 and in the stargate series the they discovered the folks at stargate which basically is an air force you know, classified program to contact ETs and go to planets and all that through this transportation device that you leave here and you wind up there with no intervening time in between. It's like a like a portal. They found a substance that augmented nuclear weapons and made them much more efficient and much more deadly. They called it NACWDA. Well, the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission covered with all these nuclear tests that they were getting very bizarre yields, much more than the limited physics of the time and the materials they were working with, like tritium and lithium and all that, uh, deuterium, should give. So my proposal is that under the right conditions, meaning the right time of day, the right position on the Earth, the right geometric relationship to the rest of the solar system, you basically open a door to this higher dimensional energy and it floods through as thermal energy and you wind up increasing the yield even of hydrogen bombs to where they were staggeringly much greater than they had calculated. Okay, we flash forward the film now. When John Kennedy was elected, you know, and I'm looking now backwards in hindsight, he appears to have been from the data that I've been able to unearth, a president who had access to very interesting rather remarkable and in fact astonishing inside information about the physics and the connection of the physics to this cosmic processional cycle georgia that you and i have discussed which is that we're now at a peak that we've never been before except for 25,920 years ago 26,000 years in round numbers okay and who who got the papers of um of Tesla, it was the uncle of Donald Trump. 
That's right. The physicist from MIT, who, Correct. who, by the way, if if Trump was the idiot everybody keeps claiming, his uncle would never have hung around with him the way he did. I've known academics out of Princeton, MIT, Harvard, whatever, and they're snobs. They will not even in the same family associate with someone who's an idiot. So the fact right. that Trump howled around with his uncle and actually had a relationship to me was an interesting giveaway that the public persona we kept seeing of Donald Trump was not the real Trump. Not at all. So anyway, moving back to Kennedy. Um, I believe Kennedy through Project Corona, which was, you, you know what Corona was, right, Danny? Right. Uh, which, which the, the initial secret spy, the secret spy satellite program that was conceived under the Eisenhower administration, bequeathed to Kennedy because Khrushchev, you know, abrogated the idea of uh, open skies, and so mm-hmm. they had to develop satellites as opposed to aircraft. And yeah, Project okay. Corona was satellite technology reconnaissance looking down. Mm-hmm. I was able actual films that had to be dropped by uh, exactly back in the primitive days of film you you put the satellite in orbit you took pictures of the Soviet Union with very high high tech cameras you you brought the film back in a canister you picked it up in a C-124 over the Pacific in a trapeze you flew it to Langley you developed the film and you saw missile bases bison aircraft bombers on the runways the whole nine yards opened up by Project Corona. I was able a few years ago, Danny, to get an access to original Project Corona film, right? Uh Bonafide, real Corona film. And what I discovered, to my astonishment, is there was not one frame on several hundred feet of film of the Soviet Union. Every single frame was taken from Earth's orbit in a vacuum looking across a quarter million miles of space at the moon. And on that film, you can see striking evidence of the artificial glass dome around the moon that I've been talking about for years. It's right there. Now, I don't have time tonight to go through all the evidence. If you're interested, I can begin to send you interesting things. But I believe Kennedy understood when he saw that film and the first successful Project Corona mission into orbit and back was during the final years of his final year of his administration. So I his, was going to say, um, could you tell us what year those films? 19, 19, 1962, I believe. The ones that you saw. Yeah. Uh-huh. So if Kennedy saw this and it was explained to him what it meant, his turnabout on inviting the Russians, the Soviets, to the moon as part of Apollo becomes suddenly crystal clear because where there's a dome, there's technology, there's physics, there's potential weapons, there's libraries. It's like having access to the Library of Alexandra, except it's an Arthur C. Clarke, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So the idea. By the way, I, I want to jump in here and remind people um, that uh, many people don't know this. Uh, one of my, uh, we've had a program on this on the other side of midnight before, and uh, if you go to Barbara's items, 
the item that says Nazi links to the U.S. space program. Everybody knows about paper, Project Paperclip. Everybody knows about Werner von Braun, the V-2 rockets and going into the Saturn, uh, the Apollo program, all of that. Everybody knows about that. Very few people know that Rudolf Hess was obsessed with the moon. <laughs> and in, he was the only prisoner in Spandau prison. There's still a great mystery about Rudolf Hess. Uh, Rudolf Hess was also, um, was also Goering's uh, liaison to whatever the Nazis were doing uh, in World War II in, in Antarctica. And um, Rudolf Hess, in his Spandau prison cell, uh, if you go to my item, Nazi links to the U.S. space program, um, you will see there, there's the link to the audio of that previous Other Side of Midnight show that we did. But most importantly is the Other Side of Midnight page with the photos, links, etc. One of the, I believe, the very first um, PowerPoint slide there uh, is of the photo of Rudolf Hess. Uh, that is, uh, he was Hitler's initial first deputy Führer. Mm. If, if Hitler had died early in the war, uh, Rudolf Hess would have been the new Führer. And it was uh, Rudolf Hess who made the famous flight uh, into Scotland and crashed and was taken captive by Churchill and then later put in Spandau prison and uh, was basically assassinated there. But that's another story. Um, but the important thing is that in this amazing photo, and then I did the research that we talked about on the program, and people can hear it in detail, all three hours of it. Um, and that was back, uh, by the way, on uh, December 1st of 2018, about three years ago. Um, uh, you will see this photo in Rudolf Hess's Spandau prison cell with all of these NASA uh, Apollo photos of the moon uh, <laughs> on the wall behind him. And he was in constant communication with Werner von Braun and, and telling Werner von Braun what they needed to do. The, 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 this is the man who, if Hitler had died early in the war, he would have been pure of Germany. Okay. The moon is very, very, very important. And I believe that Werner von Braun is is critical that the Rudolf Hess Werner von Braun connection and Werner von Braun's personal uh, meetings with JFK uh, have a lot to do with uh, JFK's famous speech uh, taking America to the moon in the Apollo program. Yep, yep. Okay, uh, two things. That's link number twenty-four in Barbara's section, and uh, she's got thirty thirty items tonight. So twenty-four. Completed an incredible yeoman service. Got everything up. And the previous uh, reference is item number four. The um, uh, let me let me scroll up here. Uh, the real Trump long-awaited Nazi glorious leader. The Trump Nazi link segment uh, begins at one o five ten, and then the video is called JFK and the Road to Nine Eleven with Barbara Honiger. So that's item number four. So item number four. And item number 24, um, if you don't remember anything else, those two tonight, but just peruse every link because it's a treasure trove. Let me go back to I believe Kennedy fully knew what was on the moon. I also believe Georgia, he understood the physics of the processional cycle and why 
his administration was laying the groundwork for the future, the next 60 years that was to come per the processional cycle, which modulates the physics. How do I know this? Because when he created the um, livery for what would become Air Force One, as opposed to the uh, Air Force uh, Orange and the uh, Military Transport Service 707s they would provide when the president, uh, you know, Eisenhower at the end of his term and then Kennedy as he came into office. Kennedy designed a unique livery, which is the uh, way an aircraft looks, all the paint jobs, the lettering, everything with the, the, with, the, with, the, with the multiple colors of blue, the presidential seal and all that. That was designed hands-on by John Kennedy himself together with, um, oh, I'm trying to remember the famous designer. He designed the Coke bottle. He designed <laughs> Robert Lowy, I think was his name, a brilliant designer of the 60s. He, uh, Jackie used to report that they would be on the floor in the Oval Office literally going through sketches and that, and that Kennedy was totally involved in designing the livery for Air Force One, which is now continued from the 707 to the 747 that uh, President Biden now uses. Here's Why where, is this important? What oh, you you're, you're about to get to where it's important. Uh-huh. He, Kennedy, specifically outflanked the numbering system for the Air Force for the tail numbers of the U.S. Air Force aircraft that fly around the world that were part of the consecutive order of special aircraft for Air Force One. And he made sure, and I've gone, I've checked the Air Force records. There's this wonderful jump in numbering. The tail number of Air Force One that Kennedy designed was 26,000. What? 26,000. The the processional cycle of the whole damn physics and the planet. Yeah, you're right. So he knew. And that's one of the major reasons, Danny, why they killed him. It's kind of like that old movie, Murder on the Orient Express. Remember who wound up killing mm-hmm. the victim? I don't, I don't watch fiction. They all did. Agatha Christie's. Turns out mm-hmm. they're all murderers. That's what we have with the Kennedy assassination. They almost had to stand in line. Because it wasn't just the Tropicante group that did it. It was all the people around them that wanted it done for all their separate reasons, culminating is our connection between Earth and what's going on off Earth. Incredibly important because when the Chinese sent their unmanned spacecraft in 2013 to the moon, Chang-3 and later Chang-4, they bragged about what was on the moon. They released through the People's Army images of the structures on the moon that matched perfectly with the Apollo images. They then measured the physics. Their website vaunted the classic idea that they were looking at the physics, the hyperdimensional model, which was in the decor and layout of their official Chang-3 website. And then something happened and I believe it's because they got out of bounds. They became too, uh, shall we say, big for their britches. 
and whoever is upstairs modulating this geopolitical scenario slapped them down hard, and that was COVID-19. You know, Richard, the metaphysical model is that with the Kennedy assassination, there was a, a glitch in the timeline, and we took a kind of fork in the road. But we're coming back to the point where we should have been. Astrologically, there's a lot of stuff lining up at the end of 2025, 26, 27, that is a possibility for a great opening or awakening for humanity if we can take it. So I think things are going to get a lot more intense up to that point. <laughs> you think? <laughs> uh, they're in pretty intense already. <laughs> well, yeah. That... Well, just, just when we think we it can't get any any more intense, it does. So. Well, first we have to pass go and collect two hundred dollars. We have to get past the midterms, twenty twenty two. Then we have to get past 2024, which is the next presidential election, and you know who is planning to run. So your 2025 time frame, which I understand comes from the, the, uh, the Vedas, the Vedic tradition and the processional cycle, that comes like a year after it's going to really hit the fan. Well, the 2025 is is it, going back to the... Uh, metaphysical idea that the spiritual hierarchy of this planet has a conclave every 100 years and the uh, subject for the agenda of the next meeting which is in 2025 is the once again externalization of the spiritual hierarchy on this planet which may be all tied up with disclosure hmm. when we come back Okay. Yeah, when when we come back, Barbara, I want to talk about uh, bio warfare. I want yeah, to. Well, we need to link that up. I, I I set up the segue, you know, deliberately. <laughs> so we're going to start with uh, Mary's monkey, uh, Danny. Yeah. You'll obviously want to talk about that as well, and then we're going to segue into why I think COVID nineteen is deliberate bio warfare. It's just not the Chinese. Okay. And we've got about two minutes till the bottom of the hour. Who wants to put a capper on this segment? Well, I'd just like to remind people um, to go to the Nazi links to the U.S. space program. And, and uh, you know, uh, December 1st, 2018, the other side of midnight, the show we did on the, the Nazi links to the U.S. space program. It's an amazing program. And um, you will you will see, if you listen to it, and you open the, um, uh, you know, the page with my photos, links, etc. mentioned in the program, uh, you will understand how the Nazis were absolutely obsessed by the moon and the space program. Um, Werner von Braun wasn't, you know, just a V2 rocket scientist. Uh, his whole thing uh, was going into space taking humanity into space. And uh, with one minute to go, I'll just remind people, and I've been, we've talked about this on your, on a different show uh, on the other side of Midnight Richard, if you recall, uh, when I was in the White House, in the West Wing of the White House, I was the chief aide to the senior domestic policy advisor to President Reagan. Um, our offices were, our desks were on the second floor right over the Oval Office. 
And um, one of my uh, portfolios was NASA and the space program. And it wasn't long, um, right at the very beginning of the first Reagan administration, when uh, Martin Anderson, Dr. Martin Anderson, the senior domestic policy advisor to Reagan and my mentor um, uh, and my boss, uh, asked me what I wanted to do. I said, well, I want to have the NASA space program. And he said, okay, it's yours. And it wasn't long after that that the phone rang, I would say about a week later. And uh, it was a stranger on the phone. Uh, his name was Dr. Um, oh, it's going to escape me for the moment, but, but anyway, oh, Dr. Gerald Klein. And, um, you know, he started talking about uh, something that he wanted to, uh, to, uh, to, t- to give me. Uh, to give to Dr. Anderson, uh, Reagan's chief domestic policy advisor. He was a very interesting person. And um, anyway, uh, I had him into the White House, um, you know, sight unseen, and um, uh, checked him into the Marine Corps gate. And uh, he came in. I took his statement, and he left. And the next night he called. He was still in D.C. And he said, you want to have dinner? And I said, yes. And it turns out that he was um, – uh, Hitler's personal physician, Morell's uh, number two physician. And so right after I was put in charge of NASA and the space program, uh, which we talk about uh, in this uh, Nazi links to the space program, the other side of midnight, um, in my items uh, for this show, um, I was contacted by Dr. Morell's uh, number two, Hitler's physician. Uh, that's not a coincidence. No, uh, the it's Nazis, not. The Nazis to this day, uh, and their their uh, successors are absolutely focused on uh, going into space and controlling space. And when we come back, I may have another data point as to why. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. And from the land of enchantment, we shall return. Side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go. The other side of midnight for this Sunday night, Monday morning, October 4th. Um, Many years ago, in 1957, 
an important event took place on this day. The modern era of space began with the launch by the Soviet Union of Sputnik 1, 1957. How times have evolved. Okay, I promised you a surprise. Werner von Braun, in addition to his work for the Nazis, Pinamunde, the development of the V2, his close association with President Kennedy, he kind of took the young president under his wing and obviously tutored him in a lot of interesting things that uh, the general public is not aware of. Why did Kennedy specifically number his Air Force One 26,000 out of sequence to the Air Force numbering system? Another anomaly that um, inquiring minds want to know. Anyway, in addition to his real work, rockets, space science, planetary science, von Braun wrote a novel based on his Mars project for taking humans to Mars. And he goes through an entire litany of the technology and development of robotic probes and then manned flight and all that, kind of like what he did in the Collier's Magazine uh, Tour de Force spread uh, back in the 1950s. And he set up a colony in his novel, which was headed by not a president, not a chancellor, but by someone called, as an honorific, as a title, an Elon. As my mother, who was a novelist, used to say, the plot doesn't just get thicker, it gets lumpier. Okay, back to our guest of the morning, Georgia Lambert, Danny Sheehan, and Barbara Honinger. Barbara, uh, you and I are of one belief that the current COVID-9 catastrophe was organized, was planned. Is it, 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 It's a pandemic, but it's not the one that is kind of out there on the net. It's much deeper, much more insidious, and I think part of a long-term plan. Where's your evidence? Well, okay, so if my items, um, I don't know what number it is because I can't see my item uh, while I'm Well, it, it, it starts with uh, Dr. Mary's Dr. Monkey. Monkey. That's, number, right. that's number 25. In fact, okay. he has gently put an entire section in yellow, biowarfare links to the JFK assassination. And from okay. 25 on down, we get All into right. this territory. Okay, so um, I'm just going to um, to let you know what is in this section for people to peruse at their leisure, and I hope you do. Uh, anyone who hasn't read the book Dr. Mary's Monkey by Edward Haslam, it's extremely important. Um, we're going to uh, get into the anthrax attacks here in a moment, uh, and their, uh, the, the relationship of that to uh, what's happening with the pandemic, and it this is not based upon speculation, as you will see. Uh, but this book, Dr. Mary's Monkey, um, the, uh, the author, uh, Edward Haslam, whom I've met at these JFK conferences, Haslam's grandfather 
uh, interestingly worked uh, on developing the first anthrax vaccine in the United States. Very interesting. Um, also, um, the, the book details the link between a Texas virologist, Dr. Mary Sherman, the JFK assassination, Patsy Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, and others in a CCA program radiating monkey viruses to create a fast-acting cancer bioweapon that was originally intended in an attempt to assassinate Castro. Of course, they had, you know, exploding cigars and everything. Nothing seemed to work. Um, but this was just one of the many ways that the CIA was hoping to be able to kill Castro and probably Raul Castro and Che Guevara and everybody else they wanted to get rid of. Uh, but this is a very important book. Um, the subtitle of the book is How the Unsolved Murder of a Doctor, that's Dr. Mary Sherman in Texas, a secret laboratory in New Orleans, and cancer-causing monkey viruses are linked to Lee Harvey Oswald, the JFK assassination, and, underlined, the emerging global epidemics, i.e. the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've got a link here between uh, the U.S. secret CIA biowarfare program during the Cold War and the JFK assassination. Okay. Um, Also in my links is a presentation that I was asked to give to another JFK conference on May 2nd of this year, 2021, that I call What Killed JFK? Biowarfare Links to the JFK Assassination. And I go into it in much more detail, not just uh, what you learn in Dr. Mary's Monkey. I highly recommend that, but I want to move on to today. All right, because you wanted to know about the coronavirus pandemic. So... Um, in my items, uh, under what killed JFK, biowarfare links to the JFK assassination, is the next item, biowarfare links to 9-11, the anthrax letter attacks, and the coronavirus pandemic. Now, this is the video of a presentation that I just gave this September 11th uh, to, um, to the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, of which I'm on the board and an investigative researcher and an officer to our live stream global conference on September 11th of this year. This is a vital, vital, vital thing to watch. And at the very end, so help me God, based upon FOIA documents that have now been FOA'd out, and I give the link to the actual documents, at the Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, The U.S. government is, as we are speaking, funding research merging anthrax with the coronavirus. Mm. Now, why would they want to do that? That would create a perfect bioweapon. Why? Oh, you'd have anthrax in an aerosolized form that would waft through the air. Well, not only – well, the important thing is you want to merge something extremely deadly with something extremely contagious. Anthrax isn't contagious, but it's extremely deadly. Okay, Um, the coronavirus variants, as they're progressing, um, they are becoming more and more, they claim, contagious. Um, So I think they're just I just think they're improving them. Well, they are, but they're improving in the same way that Dr. Mary Sherman uh, improved uh, the fast fast acting cancer bioweapon by radiating the monkey viruses. They're, They're they're speeding up 
the viral evolution to create these bioweapons. That's one of the processes that they use in these level four uh, biosecurity laboratories. Okay, so I think it's extremely important for people to understand. Um, on September 11th, the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, uh, we submitted to the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia with a copy to Attorney General Merrick Garland. Uh, and this will be, uh, this, it, it is a petition, uh, demanding a special criminal grand jury to reopen the investigation of the anthrax letter attacks that happened in the wake of 9-11. And what many people do not understand, uh, and this is the, uh, the core of all the evidence in my presentation, uh, that you can see, um, the um, the biowarfare links to 9/11, the anthrax letter attacks, and the pandemic. The video of my presentation um, to the live stream lawyers committee event on September 11th. You will see that there were legion anthrax links to the day of 9/11 itself. The government wants you to believe the official story uh, is that anthrax, the anthrax letters, uh, weren't mailed until a week after the 9/11 attacks. Now, whereas that is true. There were legion links of anthrax to the day of 9-11 itself and even before 9-11. And you will learn about that there. So why is that important? The anthrax in the letters to two members of Congress, Leahy and Daschle, Senators Leahy and Daschle, who were the two major senators who were holding up the passage of the USA Patriot Act, the equivalent of Hitler's Enabling Act, um, they are the only two senators, both Democrats, not coincidentally, who received the anthrax letters with highly weaponized military-grade anthrax mm. at one, one trillion spores per gram. This was a bioweapon WMD attack on the U.S. Congress, and we have demanded that the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia and the Attorney General Merrick Garland reopen the anthrax letter attack. Continue. Well, the obvious, the, the link to the pandemic that's very, very important that people just need to, to watch this presentation that I gave. But the link to the yeah, pandemic. That, that, by the way, is number 27. Okay. The link to the coronavirus pandemic is that 9-11 was practiced before 9-11. And on the day of 9-11, there were emergency counterterrorism exercises and war games. Uh, especially the ones in NORAD Northeast Sector that were, quote, simulating um, the actual uh, scenario like the actual attacks of 9-11, which was the pretext for NORAD not scrambling the planes in time so that the actual attacks could succeed. Similarly, the anthrax letter attacks were presaged by practice exercises in June of 2001, and the pandemic was practiced literally simultaneously with the uh, first outbreaks in Wuhan in an exercise called um, called uh, Event 201, I believe it was called, and that was in mid-October uh, of uh, 2019. What was it? 2019, and literally, literally with the time difference in, uh, with the time difference, um, 
in China, in Wuhan, China, um, believe it or not, the, the Chinese equivalent of the director of the CIA was in the United States for the Event 201 exercise, which practiced the response to a coronavirus epidemic outbreak. Mm. Literally, as, literally as the United States' military Olympic team arrived in Wuhan, China, for the military Olympic Games, during which at least five of our U.S. military Olympic team members came down with corona-type symptoms and had to be hospitalized, okay? Um, And they had recently done drills um, at Fort Detrick, which is where the U.S. government... And this was about three months before this new virus was identified as a new virus. Uh, But we now know that there were not there were not only Chinese but also these five members or uh, five or seven members of the US military olympic team were hospitalized in a hospital in Wuhan uh, during the olympic games which were literally simultaneous with the uh, CIA uh, head of the CIA equivalent of China being participating in event 201 in the United States that practiced the uh, response to precisely the kind of um, outbreak or breakout that happened in Wuhan. See, one of the things I've been concerned with from the beginning in terms of the corona, uh, you know, this, this coronavirus, COVID-19, is not the people who die, which, of course, is incredibly, horribly. We've now exceeded the death toll from the 1918, you know, uh, Spanish flu pandemic. Yeah, about two. It's the two stories I have in my section of Radio with Pictures, the studies that indicate that it's the long-term effects covering about one-third of the population who come down with COVID. That's item number five in my, uh, in my section. And then item number four, item five says, new study finds more than a third of COVID-19 patients have symptoms months or many months later. Item number four is the question, does COVID-19 affect the brain? If this is not designed to kill, ladies and gentlemen, but designed to inflict long-term harm on a population, on, on the burden, the social burden of a population. In other words, if you're, if, if you're in a war, the name of the game isn't to kill the enemy. It's to make the enemy have to take care of so many of its population. It can no longer effectively, you know, challenge you. It can't fight you. That appears to be an insidious part of this. If in fact, COVID-19 is a bioweapon, which I think the evidence, even in the mainstream, they're looking very seriously now that this was created, did not, you know, somehow cross breed from a monkey well, a bat. I, will, I will tell you and then i think we should go to our to our other panelists um i will tell you that in our lawyers committee for 9-11 inquiry live stream global conference on september 11th um you have the link to to my presentation on biowarfare links to 9-11 the anthrax letter attacks in the pandemic um but um, we had uh, eight hours of presentations, including by uh, Professor Francis Boyle, uh, who is a 
world expert on bioweapons, and he wrote the uh, the law that the U.S. Uh, statute that codified the Biowarfare Convention, uh, which was passed unanimously by both houses of Congress. And um, he has studied the literature beginning, I believe he said back in, uh, beginning, in, 19, in, in beginning in 2015. And he says, uh, and you can, you can watch, I will, I will send Kinsia the link to the entire eight hour program. I haven't done that. Oh I will do that She's an addict. Um, but you will see um, two, two presentations after mine. I was the fourth presentation. His is the sixth. Uh, he, he states in no uncertain terms and tells you how he knows that the uh, coronavirus absolutely was engineered in a laboratory. What the I like question, to do, given his the background... The switch laboratory. Yeah, what I like to do is to have him and you on together, and we'll, we will set that in motion uh, tomorrow. Um, he would love to do it. He would love to do it. We, we have a caller who's been incredibly patient. His name is Callie. Uh, Callie, you are on the other side of midnight. Hi. I was wondering, um, uh, can I ask uh, them a question? Any Anybody, yes. Um, I was wondering, uh, first of all, if anybody's seen, um, anybody knows that if you, because um, since you're federal, if like before you're a federal like agent, before you're a special agent, if you're a field agent before you're a special agent, that's one of the first questions. You mean in terms of FBI or CIA or Secret Service? What is yeah, the question? Like I don't understand. Like like if you're like a, go ahead. The, if you're a person in a ray jacket before you're a person that's um, dressing up in a suit. I don't understand the question. Like if you are, like let's say you're FBI and you're dressing in an FBI jacket. I was wondering if that's before you become a special agent. I have no idea. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> Danny? Danny? <laughs> you know, special, special agents, <laughs> when, you, when you graduate from the FBI training academy, if you're accepted in the, the FBI, you be, become a field agent. Uh, then there are special agents in charge. They call them SACs. Uh, the special agent in charge, uh, but you're a field agent. Uh, the, is the initial uh, entry level in the FBI as a field agent, and then you can become a special agent, and then you become a special agent in charge. SAC. There are three different rankings uh, of them. Terrific. So there's the same thing with ATF, right? Partners. Pardon? Yes. Same thing yeah, with I ATF. I believe that's the same also, with ATF. Also, um, one of the things I, I really liked your thing on um, the Harvey Lee Harvey Oswald thing, mm-hmm. um, because I do believe it might be a conspiracy. Like, just like um, there's a lot of things that's going on, like the shooting in Dallas and stuff like that. That stuff doesn't really make sense, you know. Um, right. I'm not saying that, that the people didn't do it. I'm just saying someone may have put it up to just make, you know, deny uh, police reform and call people who call police brutality out as anti-police. Do you have any other questions? Because we have other people waiting in line. Um, No, thank you. Well, thank you for your question and your comments. Okay, we've got one more here. Uh, Area code 703. You are on the air. Hi, uh, Carl Carl Gallaudet, calling from Alexandria, Virginia. 
Hi, Hi Barbara. Hey, Hi, good to hear your Hi. voice. Hi. It's all right. a little bit congested, but I hope you can hear me okay. Uh, we great can hear you. Hear. I, know Bar- <laughs> I know Barbara quite well from 9-11 uh, activities and actually met Daniel at the 2015 or 16 uh, uh, event uh, up in New York. But uh, I'm a very special agent. Uh, U.S. We customs. Don't, we, we don't have a lot of time, so let's let's move a little quickly here. Okay, cut, cut to the chase. Uh, there's a an author who's come out with a very recent book. Uh, the name is Laurent Guyano, G-U-Y-E-N-O-T, and it's titled The yeah. Unspoken Kennedy Truth. And it addresses the nuclear issue, but from a vastly different perspective, which was that Kennedy was working very intentionally to uh, keep Israel from getting nuclear weapons, which was a a the top priority of that new nation, which felt very threatened by the rest of the world. At the same time, uh, uh, RFK, uh, per a Senate foreign relations hearing, had issued an order to the uh, the uh, Zionist Israeli lobby at the time to register as foreign agents. Of course, with JFK's death, this all fell by the wayside. Also, uh, Israel's acquisition of nuclear weapons uh, or technology was, uh, you know, uh, the key person at CIA, the liaison with Israel, was James Angleton, and he was aware of the technology acquisition efforts in advance, and he <laughs> looked the other way. And LBJ was totally on board with Israel uh, getting more military equipment and becoming our, you know, the focal point of our relations in the Middle East. So, uh, just in terms of the uh, understanding it, well, one must look at Joseph Kennedy, Joe Kennedy was viewed by Zionist interests as an appeaser of Hitler because uh, he agreed with Chamberlain's uh, appeasement strategy. And Chamberlain, the symbol of Chamberlain, was the black umbrella. And the man who (laughs) held the black umbrella at Philly Plaza actually testified in 1978 that he was mocking Kennedy, in a sense, over exactly this issue, that the black umbrella had transferred as a... uh, a symbol of uh, mocking uh-huh. to the Kennedy. So there's a there's a Zionist element Are you to about Umbrella Man in Dealey Plaza. Umbrella Man actually testified that he was told that yeah the black umbrella is a sign of irritation to the Kennedys because of because Joe Kennedy the senior was uh, uh, an advocate of uh, Chamberlain Neville Chamberlain's uh, appeasement strategy right. of Hitler right. to to avoid the war altogether. And there apparently were well, occasional. For the record, for the record, and in one of my, um, in the um, the Nazi links to um, the JFK assassination, in one of my items, which is a video of my presentation to JFK conference a few years back, um, uh, there is that famous quote from JFK um, that he felt that uh, Hitler was a great man, and that as time went by, that would be recognized. Well, well he seems to learn something. We are running out of time. We've only got a couple, three minutes here. Thank you so much for the call. Uh, please call again. Uh, Good to hear you again. Bye. Danny, um, yeah. kind of wrap up where we are right now, because I'd like to have you all back and do a part two at some point, because I think there's so many things we've left kind of unanswered that we can let people kind of ruminate on and then come back and uh, tackle this again. Go ahead. Well, as, as you can tell from, from my uh, 
presentation that uh, I think I think the thing is quite a bit more simple than uh, you're, you're suggesting. Uh, I, I think that it's quite clear of what happened here. Uh, I think it's quite clear of who the people were that were involved, not only in the shooting itself, uh, but in greenlighting it. Uh, and it's directly linked into the people that helped fund the rise of the Third Reich in Germany. And this is fascist. And this is fascist. It's not just the Nazis, like like you know, they're an enemy of ours that are kind of trying to undermine us. The the reality is is that there's this element, this elite element in the United States that right. dates all the way back to the robber baron era, where these wealthy families took over the control through the corporations of the major elements of our economy, and that they are they have have commandeered control over our United States government and they are using the, you know, the military and the, the taxation system to project military power into the world. There's 800 U.S. military bases around the world that are designed to gain privileged access to resources around the world to feed back into our corporations. And this is the key to really try to understand. Uh, now, it, 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 it's sinister, but it's simple. Uh, you know, to, to really understand who is who is doing this. One of the questions, of course, that arises, and we can leave this up here at the end of the program, is that, you know, are these the same people who are aware of what the technology is uh, that has been developed in the area of the UFOs? In exactly. <clears throat> so, Barbara, Barbara, so that, that's, Danny, that's sorry, sorry, sorry. Barbara, okay. please, go ahead. Got one minute. Okay, I agree with Danny. Um, <laughs> let's Let's put a kind of a a line and you know like two plus two is four i agree with danny that basically the people who killed the real perpetrators of the assassination of jfk um same people who funded hitler's rise to power agreed georgia no matter what kind of adversity we have to get through individually and culturally this is all enabling us to decide what kind of people we want to be, and that affects the field, which affects everything. Wow. Amen. Wow. Everyone, thank you so much. My guest this morning, Danny Sheehan, Heiner, Lambert. We're going to do this again because, well, we have to do more. There's much more to the story, far more interconnecting dots, and a history to unravel in terms of where do we go next. I want to thank all my guests. I want to point you toward next weekend. Can't tell you what we're going to do yet because it's still in formulation. But until then, same time, same bat channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. And keep watching La Palma.